to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889-3675. You can join the show so and let your back, voice be heard relax, by Doc. And remember, Southern Sense is common sense. shortages, supply chain breakdowns continue to have a domino effect on everything, especially food production. Farmers can't plant as many crops now because of fertilizer shortages, forced regulations, and of course, high fuel prices. This will cause more painful food shortages when we run out of the food we're eating now. You know, food takes time to grow. So when farmers don't plant, well, months later, we don't eat. That's why you need to prepare for an increasing number of food shortages. And the best way is to invest in ready-hour emergency food from My Patriot Supply. It's a perfect hedge against skyrocketing prices and shortages. Right now, save $50 on a four-week food kit from My Patriot Supply. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and get your $50 savings on a four-week emergency food kit that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's preparewithsouthernsense.com. Those who know what's coming are getting prepared now. Well, if you don't want to type in that whole big thing saying preparewithsouthernsense.com and you're on my website, which is Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense, as in commonsense.com, you can easily click on My Patriot Supply and go directly to the website and get your $50 savings. As I'm telling you now, those who know what's coming are getting prepared right now. Shouldn't you? Prepare with southern-sense.com. That's 
southern-sense.com. Click on My Patriot Supply. Do it now. All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Substance Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube. Yes, back up on YouTube. Uh, iHeart Radio and half a dozen other places. You can actually watch us live by going to our website, Southern Sense. Just put a dash in the middle, southern-sense, as in commonsense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, or the least mostest, the Radio Chickadee, Annie, along with my courageous and also crafty and creative co-host, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? Hey, I'm feeling good being back on the show and taking a break from working the polls. We we started um, early voting here this past Monday, and um, it ends ah. on the 23rd here, next Tuesday. So I'm feeling good. Ah, fun and games. Fun and games. <laughs> but, what about uh, you guys we up have, there? You got early voting? Well, our, we do have, I believe it starts two weeks early. I have to double check the date. So we have our voting starting in October. Oh. So, yeah. Okay. We're, we we have a little primary. bit tighter. Our primary has passed. Our oh, primary is so over. Our primary. Okay. It was back in what was it, June? June, yeah. Excuse me, I got oh, okay. an itchy nose. Uh, and yeah, our primary that's what was back we're in having June. right now. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's how uh, Man- Nancy Mace ended up uh, getting the uh, nomination. Anyway, oh. uh, we've got a lot going on in the show today. Now we did ha- plan on having Paul Manafort on, but I got a message. Just late yesterday, really after I've I've set everything up and had all my notes done, that he ended up having to catch a flight. So when he was supposed to be on, he is boarding a plane. So he will be with us next week. I will make sure that his publicist makes sure he's here on time. (laughs) But we do have Paul Manafort next week. He's got a great new book out about his ordeal and the sham trial he went through and all the truth of what was going on. I'm getting a sense from what he's what I've been reading in his book. There's a second book coming up behind it, and it's going to blow open a lot of other things, especially what's going on in Ukraine. Um, it's going to be very, very, very interesting. And um, oh yeah, we've got uh, from OpenTheBooks.com. He's the founder, Angie F., uh, Adam Angievsky. I have to practice that a few times to make sure I can get it. He's been on the show many times, several years ago, and I just haven't had him on lately. Uh, He's got a new agent, so hooking back up and getting Adam on here. Mark Tapscott uses a lot of the research that Adam does on Open the Books for a lot of the articles that go up in the Epic Times. So it should be interesting having Adam at the front of the show and then Mark later on in the show. Uh, We also have a gentleman who sends me a lot of these fantastic guests such as Judge Jeanine Pirro, uh, Peter Navarro, things, uh, people like that. Uh, A.J. Rice, he is the CEO of Publish PR, and he's got a great book out called The Woking Dead. I'm looking forward to talking to him about that. And, of course, we have Mark Capscott from the Epic Times. And then we'll close off the show with uh, our guest from the Heritage Foundation returning, Jonathan Butcher. He's the Will Skillman Fellow in Education. And we're going to be a little edified by Will Skillman. So that said, ah, we have a lot to do here today. 
a lot to do. Oh, yeah. So let's rock and roll. I want to welcome everyone that's listening here over on Blog Talk Radio in the chat room here. And those that will be joining us live on Facebook, uh, YouTube. Uh, YouTube, it's under Southern Sense. Just key in the name of the show. Make sure you put a space in between. And also on my webpage, which is Southern Sense. And you can watch live there or catch it up on uh, Spreaker um, and catch the links to go into Blog Talk Radio and everywhere else. Just up on our homepage, which is the name of the show. And just put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. And Angie uh, Esky is also the maiden name of singer Pat Benatar. Very interesting, Sasquatch. Thank you very much for a little bit of trivia. Love our listeners. There's not a dummy among them, <laughs> unless they're a troll. <laughs> All intelligent, knowledgeable. Mm. That said, people that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to uh, Lieutenant William D. LeBeau of the Lebanon City Police Department in Pennsylvania. His end of watch was Thursday, March 31st of this year. And this is from thelebtown.com, written by the staff. And it reads, Flanked by Lebanon City Police and Mayor Sherry Capello, Lebanon County District Attorney Pierre Hefgraf shared additional details on March 31st shooting that left Lebanon Police Lieutenant William LeBeau dead, and two other officers seriously wounded. At the press conference held Thursday morning, April 7th, in the Lebanon City Municipal Building, Hess Graff shared investigative findings regarding the shootings. The findings depict a brutal assault on Lebanon police by Travis Shad, who Hess Graff said had a long-standing history of mental health afflictions and repeatedly refused treatment and medication and resisted intervention efforts. Lebanon police were dispatched on the day of the shooting, Thursday, March 31st, to a private residence on the north side of Lebanon City. The caller told dispatchers that his stepson, Shad, had entered his home without authorization. The caller had arrived at his home after work and recognized Shard's vehicle parked at the house, and a rear window smashed, apparently by Shard, to forcibly enter the house. Hesgraf said that there was no confrontation between the family member and Shard that day, and that the family member had immediately phoned for law enforcement once he realized what was going on inside the house. When city police arrived at Forest Street, they met with family members, and developed an understanding of the home's interior, as well as an entry plan. Hesgraf emphasized that the residents had multiple windows, and all officers drove to the scene in marked police vehicles and were wearing Lebanon City Police uniforms and badges, making it plainly visible they were law enforcement officers. Along with police, the family member approached the house and retrieved his dog while Lieutenant LeBeau and three other officers approached the rear door and asked Shad to show himself. 
According to investigative findings, Shard initially approached the police, but concealed his hands and refused police orders to show them. He then proceeded to grab a loaded handgun and fired three rounds at the officers, striking LeBeau and Officer Derek Undercoffler. Hesgraf said that LeBeau and Undercoffler were not able to return fire, not able to return a single round due to the speed with which the attack unfolded. Hesgraf and police had previously stated that the gun used to kill LeBeau and wound the other officers came from inside the house. He was able to get, grab that gun immediately, and his first action was to point and fire at close range, the DA said. Neither man had the ability to defend himself or fire upon the suspect, she said in the statement. Neither man possessed the ability to fend off the immediate evil he faced that day. Shad proceeded to fire additional shots at the officers while they took cover and returned fire. Hesgraf said that the officers acted with immeasurable bravery to defend themselves and their fellow officers. Hesgraf added that officers Christopher McCarrick and Ryan Adams were able to fend off the attack and disable Shad, whose autopsy revealed multiple gunshot wounds. Hesgraf said that the review of body camera footage showed that Shad had continued to return fire even after initially wounded. Officer McCarrick acted at the scene to remove Officer Undercoffler to safety after he had been shot, as well as treating LeBeau and remaining with his lieutenant until additional help arrived. Officer Adams, also struck by gunfire, was able to radio for help despite being gravely injured. According to the investigation, Adams stated that multiple officers were shot and requested immediate backup. Hesgraf said that local police departments, Lebanon County probation officers, and sheriff departments all responded and attempted life-saving measures on LeBeau until the medics arrived, as well as treating Adams and Undercoffler. Law enforcement acted selflessly to save their own, said Hesgraf. Adams and Undercoffler were transported to Penn State Hershey Medical Center, where they received emergency care. Adams has since been discharged from the hospital, while Undercoffler had remained hospitalized but in stable condition. Every day he gets stronger. Every day he recovers more, she said. The Lebanon County District Attorney's Office and Lebanon County Detective Bureau immediately began their investigation. Their investigation determined that Shad had fired at least seven bullets at police. Two of those struck LeBeau at close range, and each wound would have been fatal on its own. Regardless of the efforts made by countless officers to save his life, the injuries Lieutenant LeBeau sustained were beyond repair. Every day, with every call, with every scene they respond to, our police officers take that ultimate risk, she said, and they do that for each of us. Behind every one of your police officers, behind everyone who wears a badge, is a person. The message I want to end with today is simply one of gratitude, she said, reflecting on Saturday's massive show of support for LeBeau and other officers. 
It's gratitude for the people of this community who have supported our police officers and this department. And it's also to every single police officer, probation officer, and sheriff's deputy who were on scene that day. And this is from WITF.org, written by Jenna Wise from Penn Live. Family, friends, and police officers and grateful residents from across Central PA came together to celebrate the life of Lebanon Police Lieutenant William Bill LeBeau, who was gunned down by a burglar in a city home. There wasn't a cloud in the sky as a procession of police officers escorting his casket slowly made its way down Hershey Park Drive to the Giant Center in Hershey ahead of the 11 a.m. service. The procession started at Christman Funeral Home in Lebanon. Nine uniformed Lebanon City police officers carried LeBeau's flag-covered casket into the ceremony. Rows and rows of current and former police officers were there to greet them. A photo of the young LeBeau in uniform was front and center stage, right in front of him on a thin blue line flag. The Pennsylvania State Troopers carefully folded the flag on LeBeau's casket and carried it away until the end of the service. LeBeau, 63, served 40 years on the force and was scheduled to retire on May 1st. He was one of three officers, 34-year-old Travis Shout shot on March 31st inside his stepfather's home, according to Lebanon County District Attorney's Office. Bill's wife, Laura LeBeau, and Lebanon Police Lieutenant Eric Sims delivered the eulogy together to represent both the personal and professional parts of Bill's life. I just knew he was my person. I was blessed to have 14 years of wonderful, Laura said. He was my everything. Sundays were a time for slow jazz, barbecue, watching golf, and essentially relaxing before the start of another work week. Bill hated when people ruined a relaxing Sunday with noisy activities like mowing the lawn. Laura said she often asked Bill, if he was sure he's happy, and he'd respond, Oh, you can't imagine, dear. Sims and mentee of LeBeau's said LeBeau was notorious for using all modes of transportation to get to work, be it his feet, car, pogo stick, scooter, among others. LeBeau regularly took his platoon out to eat and refused to let anyone else pay. He wore an argyle scarf to work when it was cold outside, and he always wore his police cap, according to Sims. Sims said LeBeau instructed the Lebanon police officers to drive slowly with the windows down to catch everything that was going on in the city. LeBeau emphasized the importance of stopping to talk to residents to establish a rapport. A favorite buildism of Sims was, You're going places. Sims thought LeBeau saved that phrase just for him, but he later realized LeBeau said that to everyone and believed it. Other people who knew LeBeau told Penn Live said his quiet, calm demeanor was perfect traits for a police officer to have and largely successful at diffusing 
volatile situations. He was one of the good guys. You just didn't get him upset, said Lindell Shuey, a childhood friend who grew up with LeBeau in Ono, Lebanon County. Shuey and Willie, as Shuey called LeBeau, went through EMS training together and joined Ono's volunteer fire department as young men. Shuey said LeBeau took every training session seriously and was always ready to go as soon as the rig pulled up to a burning building or a bad car crash. It's a shame they lost a good guy, he said. You can't say enough good about him. I doubt you could find anybody who doesn't like him. LeBeau was making money in the auto body business back then, and Shuey was surprised when LeBeau told him he wanted to become a police officer. Shuey told, said LeBeau was shy and a bit introverted, but it was these same quiet rationalization skills that later made LeBeau a talented negotiator on the Lebanon police force. I can only imagine he was cool, calm, and collected that day, said Greg Holler, a retired Lebanon police lieutenant. Bill had such excellent control. The gunfight LeBeau faced last month wasn't the only time he was in a life-threatening situation on the job. LeBeau was excellent at de-escalating hot calls, emotionally charged situations that were violent or could potentially become violent, according to Rutter. De-escalation is the most undervalued skill for police officers, he said. I have a lot of respect for him, and the Lebanon police has lost a terrific officer. LeBeau didn't have time to even react after he and three other officers opened the back door of 1108 Forest Street on March 31st, armed with their handguns and ballistic shields. District Attorney Piers Hess-Graff said that when he was asked to show himself and his hands, Shad immediately grabbed one of his stepfather's guns and started firing at the officers. Officer Ryan Adams was shot and released from the hospital this week and was able to radio for help while Officer Christopher McCarrick shot and killed Shad. Officer Derek Underkoffler was also shot, and McCarrick had to carry him out of the house. Graf said Underkoffler is still in the hospital. LeBeau was survived by his wife, Laura, his mother, Rena, and daughter, Corinne. He was born in Italy, and his family moved to the United States when his father returned from military service. LeBeau was the first Lebanon officer killed in the line of duty in nearly 120 years. Being a police officer is a calling. It's not a job, Bowman said. It's a whole lifestyle. It's something that never goes away, even when you retire. He fulfilled that calling and lifestyle as a police officer should. Today's show is dedicated to Lieutenant William LeBeau. It's also dedicated to all of the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this marvelous nation through today and into our hopeful future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herringdon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
What? I forgot to unmute myself. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm talking away my... I was wondering. I, 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 I said to myself, how you doing? This is Colonel Wimbish, proud and glad to be on her Southern Sense Radio again. I said, she'll hit that mute button off in one of these seconds. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I, I'm sorry. I used to be a blonde. <laughs> You know, with what has been going on lately with this administration and the agencies under it, uh, I would be surprised if it wasn't a huge tsunami. Um, Because now we've got Jim Jordan and uh, uh, Grassley both demanding answers from the FBI because they have whistleblowers from the FBI showing up in their offices, contacting their offices, saying, hey, listen, this is a political witch hunt. This is not the FBI that we agreed to join. Uh, this should be nonpartisan, Amen. but it's become a heavy, heavy witch, witch hunt. So whistleblowers are coming forward. God bless these brave men and women that are doing that. And let's hope we can now start to drain the swamp. Oh, we are. No, you only need to worry about hope. The, the, the hope will happen. We will drain the swamp. We just got a few more mu- uh, months. Please be patient, America, because I tell you, we have stood up so many patriots, not just former military, and I love your tribute that you just went through, but we got a lot of people who are former first responders, policemen, men who work for the other agencies and the FBI agencies who are stepping up, taking their credentials, laying them down, because it's, it's wrong that the hierarchy of all these organizations from the White House and the DOJ right on through is making us 
worker bees, the ones who have to be the door kickers, look bad. And it's children and wives and, and family members who love us, to love what we do to protect them from the evil. But if you have none of these guys and gals in these agencies in the military and first responders, we have chaos. We don't need that. And that's why many of us are saying enough is enough. I'm exercising my Second Amendment right. I'm going to protect us from all enemies, both foreign and now domestic. Thank you, and God bless you for that. Right now, there's early voting for the primary in Florida. Uh, so people can go to your website and still help support your, your candidacy. Uh, what is your website? Because I don't have the information up yeah, in front absolutely. of me immediately. Not a problem. It's too easy. I want people to, first of all, the reason this is the season to do what? Vote. V-O-T-E. Cal. C-A-L. 2022.org. VoteCal2022.org. Go to my website. Join my team locally. We need people to go in and make sure you knock on every door, both those who are Republican, the nonpartisans who still haven't made up their mind, and even the Democrats who are having buyer's remorse. They need to step up to the plate and join the team. But more importantly, the, the dark money has come to me. If you can donate well, to my campaign at votecal2022.org, I can make things, I can show you that I would do everything to make every dime worthwhile. And we need people like you to help re- repeal this Inflation Reduction Act, because once that starts hitting <laughs> in next year, oh, name. my. Ah. <laughs> I'm sorry. You I made have... me laugh. I mean, whoever thinks these things up must, must have been high as a kite. <laughs> well, they do that on purpose. You know they've done this for uh, since they realized that they got caught with the hand in the cookie jar when they were ones, the Democrats, who created everything that caused havoc and slavery. They haven't stopped their plan. They're still working the same plan for the last 150 years, and including what was in the congressional record of 1963, which I am just take, telling people, please, just Google Congressional Record 1963, Communist Goals to Take Down America, and all 45 steps are exactly what they're doing. They're just following the playbook. They have full people. they got the media jumping on the bat, the fake media. And I tell you, Donald Trump wasn't wrong when he talked about fake media. They're alive and well, and they keep repeating the same old script. We have to cut their, their voice off, get civil voices like you all on Southern Sense, like our, our civil-minded uh, TV and radio stations, we got to all join together and stop being quiet conservatives. we got to be loud. We don't have to be riotous, but we have to be vocal in what our actions speak louder than words. Let's take the right kind of action to save our nation. Got to be loud and proud. Now, what district are you yeah. uh, running for so the audience knows, and what areas do you cover? Roger that. I'm in the 10th district. This used to be Val Demi's district. She vacated her seat to try to go after Marco Rubio for the Senate. And I can tell you right now, that's likely not going to happen with this. The words that I'm hearing from my constituents who have Hispanic background, Puerto Rican, as well as even the Brazilian community. But my district now, since the the redistricting occurred on April the 22nd, uh, stretches from south of Popka 
and going south along what we call this, the name of the highway is the Hopopka, South Apopka Violent Highway, all the way down into the area of Dr. Phillips. Then it stretches down towards the southern part near Disney, down to the what they call the 528 covering Oak Ridge and Tangelo Park. Then it goes due east, all the way across to a town called Weatherford, and which is out in the country area, but these are great patriots out there, every one of them. And then up towards the uh, Seminole County boundary, and then it takes it all the way across from Avalon Park, Maitland, uh, Winter Park, on, on back up to uh, the southern uh, Apopka. So it's a huge district that includes the Orlando Central, 850,000 people out of the million five that once was the old district, still are part of the, the cup that now is the runover with patriots stepping up and agreeing with me, enough is enough. Let's, what, what do you have to lose by not giving a guy like me a chance to change the direction our country is coming? <laughs> you know, um, one of the things we've, we've been, we're going to be talking about today uh, with someone from the Heritage Foundation is education, the attack on education. Yes, uh, and the critical, critical race theory, and then they also now dress it up with all these other amazing, wonderful-sounding names. But it's the same thing. It's the same pig with lipstick on it. Uh, how would <laughs> like you go F-E-L. about it? <laughs> yeah. I love this. I have been talking like this since we last were on the radio, and they keep coming up with a new acronym, a new way of trying to slant the old story, of trying to change what God has put on this earth in terms of what a man and a woman is and this transgender and social, you know, educational level of thinking and trying to people say it's okay to feel like you, you feel like, and then we have to accept it. Listen, I don't want America to become Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's what I think we're headed to. And unless we, we stop this craziness and letting minds open uh, or try to overrun the truth, I am ready to go to Congress and, number one, let's get rid of the Department of Education. Number two, I want the states to come back and get some common sense into their educational system. They need to start teaching civics again so people are love this nation. They need not tell a child who is a kindergartner, even up to the 10th grade, what their gender ought to be or what they might want to be and have to learn about all the other acronyms that add up to little or nothing. In fact, I heard one said the LBGQC ought to be let's let Biden retire quickly. You know, so maybe that's what they're really trying to say. And maybe we ought to retire him right away. But we will retire him. We will put him to sleep. We take over the House and the Senate. We're going to be ready to take charge and not let his voice be the voice of the country. Let's silence him so that the country can, again, rise above its circumstances and be all that we can be as a nation. Colonel. Now, um, oh, go, go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I was just wondering, what's the turnout like down there, voter turnout? Turnout is, since, every, since they trampled on President Trump's uh, private property and they, they evaded the first president ever who had to be tortured like this, they didn't do it to Hillary, they didn't do it to any of the other ones, Clinton, when they, they did worse things, but yet they, they come into his home. That infuriated, and if people, you go to my website again at VoteCal 2022, You'll see what I put out the very next morning. It was atrocious. It, it's scary. If they can go after the president of the United States who had his top secret FBI, he's a president. 
you don't take it away. He did, and he had declassified all those documents they claim he didn't. That's really the DOJ on a witch hunt. And I'm glad those agents are coming out of the woodwork telling the truth about what's really going on out there. Uh, but uh, that that is uh, the turnout has been phenomenal. People are stepping up. All the polls are there are like uh, 20 early voting uh, spots here in the district, and uh, 11 out of my district, 20 in the Orange County as a whole because they split the district into two between uh, District 11 and 10. And in Orange County, the line since the day after they hit Trump's house has been unbelievable. Steady flow, and from what I'm hearing on the people that come out, more have voted for Trump and uh, I mean, for all the Republicans hoping that we can get Trump into office when he comes back in 2024. But Ron DeSantis, myself, Marco Rubio, I believe we're going to really take it take it to the House, as they say. We're going to take this Super Bowl game. Yeah, there's a lot that's coming out about uh, this raid, and it comes up to uh, a ruling, a precedent ruling, by Judge Amy Jackson, I believe it was, in 2012. Yes. Yeah that when Clinton had some tapes or something like that in his sock drawer, and they said that you can't, if the president's president's papers, it's his president's papers, you can't touch the Department of Justice and no one else. I mean, it's his papers. I mean, the archives can't even ask for them. So they made that precedent under Clinton, but somehow it didn't apply to Trump. No, because it, remember, what's good for the goose is not necessarily good for the gander. So that's what they're applying. When they're in power, just like Lindsey Graham said, it's all about power. They take the rules that they stomp on every Republican in the past, and they beat the heck out of it. But when it comes to them, oh, no, you're picking on our people. You know, Hillary's okay and Clinton's okay. You and I know that is not okay because that is way out of line with what the Constitution was designed and stands for our nation. And, and that, when they do that, just like your, the agents that are coming out right now walking into different congressmen's offices, and I'm glad they're doing it, and uh, they're telling them they need the whistleblowers. We need them in every agency. Call, as my dad who was a farmer once told me, you better know the difference between a hoe, H-O-E, and a spade. Because if you don't, if you use it for the wrong thing, you will ruin the crop. They're putting a lot of ruin to America's potential to be the greatest country ever again. We need to bring it back. That we do. That we do. And uh, with this pandemic lockdown, uh, I think a lot of the sleeping giant has awoken within this nation. And the more we see what our government intrusion is doing. And the more we see of it becoming more of a police state, and I don't mean that to, to bemoan my fellow members in blue. I mean representing something out of communist China. Um, it, it's become very scary. And there's absolutely no investigation into Hunter Biden or Uncle Joe's, you know, creepy Uncle Joe and his handling of China and Ukraine. It's... it's it is unbelievable what our nation has evolved into, and we've got to bring it back. We've got to bring it back. All and right. the very first place to start oh, yeah. is with the education. Because if, the, if we don't know what our rights and liberties are, if we don't know what our principal founding was, then we will never be able to regain. 
You're absolutely correct. And that's why I encourage and employ every voter in the sound of my voice. Wherever you are, if you've already voted, and you voted not for a true conservative constitutionalist, someone who loves this America, as I do. And those people are generally on the Republican side of the the aisle. And we know we're a two-party system, although we still have independence. Independent, nonpartisan, you have abdicated your right. It's like walking on a fence, trying to decide which way you're going to fall off. But unfortunately, if you fall squarely on nothing, you can't really make a decision on who's going to represent you in a fair and impartial manner. That's why I'm telling people to go out, register to vote, register as a Republican, give the Republicans the opportunity to take the reins of our nation and control it in a way that they're not overtaxed, they're not just printing money to give it away to people who don't want to work for a living. I understand what it is to come up hard. I know everyone, like C.S. Bennett and I, we know what it is to come up hard. We also know what it means when you have to work hard to earn your living. Whether you join the military or you do something locally as a first responder, be willing to put yourself at risk with people you don't even know so that they can have a nice day and a nice life. How blessed that is to be able to be that kind of a person and be able to stand up. And if not you, then who? If not now, then when? Is what I tell all the young people and some older people. Enough is enough about whining what you don't have. Please, look in the mirror. Let's do your individual part so collectively as a nation we can win back and start having our dollar be worth more than about a 35 cents on the dollar right now. I want to get it back to a dollar. It may take a little longer than I would like, but if we can start now in this next in this election in 22, by 2024 we'll start creeping the inflation down, getting the value of our dollar up, break the supply chain gridlock that we have, get our oil pumping, get our fracking going, and get all of the things that are hurting our people from being able to decide, do I put gas in my car or do I put food on my table? Oh, my rent just went up, and my landlord wants to increase it just because he can. State and local need to do their part, too. But I and Congress will do my best to eliminate those, those laws that are on the books, just like President Trump did when he came into office. Let's take the ridiculous laws out of the way. Let's change. Let's go ahead and decide, House and Senate, and override any veto that our nation can, again, see light down the tunnel, the light of opportunity, and not a light of destruction trying to kill our nation. Well, you, you said so much in just what you did, and about 15 different topics I can easily branch out into. But <laughs> let's start with inflation, because people understand that. We're no longer under inflation. We are in a full-blown recession. And there was an article recently in the Epic Times that broke down new car ownership. Do you know for someone to purchase a car today, it's going to cost them over $10,000 a year for that car? Wow. Because of inflation, wow. the, it will cost somewhere around 895 or 805 somewhere between there, per month for someone to own a car. That's a, now, I've got that, a used car. And fortunately, before <laughs> all the... the S hit the fan, I refinanced the car for a lower interest rate, so I brought my payment down. And thankfully, I did that at the time I did. But still, with the increase in insurance, 
and the increased cost of gas and maintenance, too, because I just had a tune-up, which was over $300. Who can afford to buy a car today, much less buy an electric car that costs over 65000 Now, imagine the, down, the payment on that car per month. Throw that $10,000 figure out the window, honey. It's going to be more than double that. Uh, you're, you're, you're spot on. And to tell the people, go ahead, and, and that so-called this, uh, uh, the, uh, their, uh, transportation, you know, it's sad when he says, oh, well, you know, in time you can buy a car. Well, you tell that to the persons making under fifteen or dollars or $35,000 a year. What are they going to do between now and your projection of 10 years from now to be total electric? Most of those people will be found on the side of the road like the F-O-R-D in the word Ford. When I was a kid, they used to say, found on the road dead. On road dead. As a yes. car. That <laughs> well, that's what's going to happen with all the cars and the people who couldn't afford an electric car based on this projection of having a, a, a universal green environment society where everybody's total electric and half the electrical stations that have to be set up, most of them need some kind of source of power to generate the electricity. Oh, by the way, let me see. That comes from fossil fuel, I think, for the generators, and then everything that keeps the engines and the, and the drive shafts and the cranks going, that needs something called oil. And not every, I could go on and on. My point is that <laughs> they're setting up a false utopia dream set that can't be realized, and it's going to hurt more than help. The millions of people in America especially those who just immigrated here legally and those who come here illegally are benefiting just as much as those who came here legally because they're getting more attention and getting money out of the pot that they claim is going to help reduce taxes and this this uh, tax reduction act they're going to create more problems for everybody and everyone on the lower income side of the house as well are going to feel the pain you read the daggone law that he just signed, it will make you choke. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 87,000 new IRS agents. Now, uh, <laughs> Senator Cruz tried to put some amendments on there, and the amendments were all blown out the window. He would have diverted some of that money to the border, to the military, to higher bo- higher border agents, as well as securing the border. He would have funneled that money over to protect our nation, and instead we have 87,000 new IRS. Oh, they're not real agents. They're really clerks, but they're armed. They're armed. <laughs> armed agents. And, well, I tell you what, Jim Jordan and I, well, I, I, hello, Jim Jordan. I want you to shout out to me and give me your endorsement right now because I can guarantee this, this uh, neophyte congressman, when I come to town, I've got my sleeves already rolled up. That, those 87,000 have to be, a, they may have been authorized, but they have to be appropriated funding. Jim, you and I and every member of the House, once we take over the House, we're going to stop that funding from occurring. So those 87,000 agents that want to be armed, as far as I'm concerned, won't even get a money to get one penny paid to that kind of job. Let's get IRS going back to what they have failed to do in the last 10 years, let alone keep cutting every kind of way in which you could have helped society by taking away the things that help people stretch their dollars. And then you overtax everyone, and then you can't give them those, those uh, benefits that they have with family and homes. They keep taking away the whole tax program that once was 
okay to live with. But in the last 15 to 20 years, it has just become an atrocious misnomer in terms of this is your taxes and get your refund, but we keep the interest after we take your money all year. we got to stop it. So I'm ready to fight against that. I will fight to kill the tax law. I will fight to kill any more tax bills. There's, there's trillions of dollars and things that's no big deal, printing money. Again, people's eyes have been so blinded by the, they call it, they call it a falsehood of truth. And I remember what Booker T. Washington once said, and C.S. heard me say this once before, that when a lie becomes the truth and the truth becomes, uh, and, and right becomes wrong and good becomes evil just because it's accepted by the masses, doesn't make it right. Here's a man who came out of slavery, started the Tuskegee Institute, had more wisdom then. What's wrong with the people now? Wake up. We can turn that. The CNNs and the other four networks or five that are so lying, you, you can flip the channels, listen to it, write it down, and I guarantee you the script on the other four channels are exactly the same. It's, a, it's collusion, and it's, it's deceptive. It's disinformation and misinformation. To fool the pay people who know, don't know how to change the channel to a good station, You're like OAN, which they flipped off of AT&T DirecTV, and I'm going to cancel my contract as soon as it's up, which next month. And you got uh, uh, Newsmax, and you got Fox, which needs to get, get itself even in a stronger gear. But that's what we got against. We have available at least get the right word out so people can have some fair and balanced opportunity to hear the truth and then make a personal yeah. decision. Well, you also mentioned something about the military, which you have great experience with, but the new military today is not what you went through. It's now full of social engineering, <laughs> where they teach them CRT. Uh, and it's like, you've got to be kidding me. The purpose of the military is to protect this nation. It is out there to kill and destroy whatever is trying to destroy us, not to worry about, wonder about whether or not the guy or gal in the next bunk is an LBGT and you may end up triggering them if you say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Your, your job is to point and shoot. That's your job. That's, That's all it. you have to worry about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this, and it's sad when... Social engineering when is destroying our military. It started at the top when they allowed it to creep in. They was creeping into the military. Several of my friends from special operations have left because, one, they weren't going to take the jab. Two, they were starting to take them away from being the expert marksmen and expert uh, paratroopers and expert mountaineers and expert in all the skill sets that special ops bring to the table. In fact, it's no longer should be called special ops because the regular army now puts the special ops out there that we're becoming the main army again. We're supposed to have been elite special units that would go in when your general military could not get the mission. We would go in behind enemy lines, be able to go in and infiltrate, educate, train up the people in, the, in those countries. And now in America, well, domestic helpers need help to understand how to def- identify and, have been de- and then defeat the enemy. But the enemy has got our culture under control with the line media networks, et cetera. But it's sad when the Green Berets and, and Navy SEALs I'm talking to right now, who just recently were forced out or just said, this is not the Navy, this is not the Army that I signed up for, 
and 90% of them said, yeah, they spent half the time sending me to some cultural awareness course. I've already been above that. I've learned to get above that through BUDS and through the Special Forces two-year program. We're not, that, we're not the ones that need to be going through that. The ones who have nothing better to do is sit in their offices and direct that kind of change and then push it up to the Joint Chiefs and then have them push it down. Ah, and I've got young, young people, several of them I know, went off to the academy. They're coming back to regular colleges because the academies is forcing them out of it. They don't take the jab, take these, these CRT and SEL courses. It, it's a waste of good effort, uh, effort. and they've taken bad uh, educational things that they claim is educational, and they've defeated a whole point of why you have a military. The backbone is weak. It's getting weaker in China, Russia, Iran, Iraq. Everyone who hates America is laughing at us. And Europe eventually is going to say, oh, America is just like me. Welcome to the global economy. Not on my watch. <laughs> Hopefully not on a watch very, or anytime soon. But with Uncle Joe out there, so, folks, you got to get out there and start and get your vote in there. Get your vote. Grab your neighbor. If there's someone that your next-door neighbor hasn't voted, get them registered and get help them get to the poll. If there's a senior citizen need the help, help get them to the poll. We need to get the bodies to the polls and vote red. It's got to be a tsunami because right now we had uh, Rachel Campos Duffy attack our religion. Catholics with the rosary. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. we're now the terrorists. Oh. Oh, oh my well, God. You know, well, the first thing the communists do is they go in and destroy religion because they want you to worship at the altar of government, not God. And this is yes. what our government's Amen. doing to us now. Amen. You, you're nailing it right on the head. I'm glad you're out there. You're talking common sense in Southern Sense Radio, and that's what's missing, <laughs> common sense. And this, is, this just drives me up the wall. It causes me to get about five hours, maybe four and a half, five hours of sleep at night because I can't wait to get out and start knocking on doors and talking to people coming out of the shopping centers and malls, and they don't want me staying on their property, so I stand out on the sidewalk. My teams and I, were all over the place. I've got endorsed by 127 churches, part of the conservative churches of, of uh, Orange County. I just got endorsed by John Stenberger back on July the 21st, the Florida Republican Assembly on July the 18th. And just last week on the 11th, I got endorsed by uh, Tony Perkins and uh, uh, General uh, Perk, uh, Boykin, former Delta Force commander who's the vice president of the Family Research uh, Council. Uh, pack, and I've got a lot more coming, and I was honored, just FYI, I hope something good comes out of it. I met with uh, Donald Trump Jr. last night at an, at a, an event where he endorsed a young lady who's uh, running for state house down here in Florida, a Christian woman who's been smeared. The smear tactics are unbelievable. I'm getting them. I've been trained on how to deal with it. I'm let it get me down, but she's a prayer warrior in her family. Are, they came here, they immigrated here, and I can tell you, it's a beautiful when you see the immigrants who come here legally, follow the, the process and the rules, and they love America. I hate to say it as it is, but they love America so much more than people who are born here and keeps trashing our country. What's wrong with this picture? 
Well, hopefully we get more people like you. So vote Calvin 2022, right? Right. Vote Did I get Cal, that right? C-A-L. Yes. No, no, it's vote Cal, just half of my name. Vote Cal 2022.org. So V-O-T-E-C-A-L 2022.org. Well, Colonel, I, like I wish you a lot of luck. Well, go ahead, finish. Right, thank you, and... I was just going to say, I'm a Christian conservative constitutionalist with a C in my name reflects, and I got common sense, the four C's. The A is America first. I have been and always will be America's first candidate, America forever. And the L is I'm loyal to my constituents and to that flag I salute and to the audience. I don't knuckle and I don't bump. I don't do elbows. I salute you. I salute you to salute yourselves every day. God bless America. Let's go all the way. All right, well, God bless you, All Colonel, right. and I wish you a lot of luck, and thank you for calling in. It was a very great and wonderful surprise. Thank you so much. And next Tuesday, I hope that if you have money here with you, I'll give you great news that I won the election down here to go on to the November 8th of the win. All right. Well, hopefully we'll get great news. Colonel Calvin Wimbash, check it out. And make sure if you're in Florida, District 10, get out there and vote. Vote Cal. God bless him. All right, and we have returning, which I have to apologize. He has not been on the show for a number of years, and that's my bad, my fault. I have had so many wonderful guests. It's not that I haven't forgotten him, but I have been following him very, very, very closely since he works with a friend of mine, Mark Tapscott, at the Epic Times, Adam Andrzejewski. Good afternoon, Adam, from OpenTheBooks.com. It's great to be on the program. Thank you for having me back. Well, that, how is that for an apology? I mean, that was my bad not having you come back on. But like I said, I have been following you very closely. Well, it's great to work with Mark Tapscott. He's a real pro. You know, most people don't know that Mark is actually uh, decorated. He's in the Freedom of Information Act Hall of Fame. He's filed so many Freedom of Information Act requests on federal, state, and local agencies. And with such great effect with his oversight reporting at the Epic Times and elsewhere over the course of his career, that he's actually in the Freedom of Information Act Hall of Fame, which is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> I didn't even know they had one. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lifetime goal of mine, actually, to be nominated and uh, inducted into that Hall of Fame. Last year, our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com we filed 50,000 Freedom of Information Act requests. It was the most in American history, and we successfully captured at the federal, state, and local levels $12 trillion worth of government spending. Nothing like this has ever been done before. We post it all for free so people can follow the money and hold both sides, Republicans and Democrats that are spending too much of our money, hold them accountable. You can see it all on our website like I said, there's no charge for it. And one of the unique data sets is 25 million public employee salary and pension records right down into your K-12 school district. By name, by title, how much they made last year, you can look them all up. You know, that's what I love about your website. You know, everything, all politics starts at the local level. So if we're not paying attention, those that get elected to local level end up going up the food chain unless your name is Donald Trump, and then that's an anomaly. But if we don't pay attention locally, how the heck are you going to hold them responsible federally? 
Well, you're exactly Correct. right. I think we have reverse subsidiarity in this country. It used to be that the local units, the units closest to the people, were the least corrupt. Today, if you take a look at it, they just might be the most corrupt. So by the time that, that elected officials get to Washington, D.C., after climbing up the, the ladder of success politically, you know, it's no wonder that both sides are just spending us into oblivion. And I want to put some, some numbers behind that assertion. Over the course of the last two decades, 20 years, starting with the George W. Bush administration, our national debt has gone from less than $6 trillion under George W. Bush to over $30 trillion with President, o with President Biden. So it's up five times our national debt, and it's been a Republican, followed by Democrat Obama, followed by Republican Trump, followed by Democrat Biden. So Republicans and Democrats, they have all spent us into oblivion. You know, I remember watching the debt clock. Uh, oh, geez. And now I'm going to really date myself. Before I moved here in 2001, and when it hit that trillion mark, that one trillion mark, it's like, all right, that's it. You know, they're going to put the brakes on it. They're going to start reversing it. Yeah, you really think so? Yeah, right. And I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. And we have watched it climb, and we don't understand. The average person doesn't understand the cost to us down the road. I mean, we may be dead and gone, but it's our kids, our grandkids. And if we bankrupt this nation, there will be no free nation left in the world. Yeah, that's right. And, and like I said, both sides, you know, Republicans far too often have joined Democrats to drain the U.S. Treasury from the left and the right. And so we just need better leadership overall. And, you know, for those on the center right, you need to insist on better leadership from Republicans when it comes to spending. Well, you know, i got to tell you something. The first article I have in my stack to talk to you about um, I put a little notation on here because I've got Jonathan Butcher from the Heritage Foundation uh, joining us at, towards the end of the show. He's the Will Skillman Fellow in Education. So I made a notation to save this for him. It's an article you wrote that's up on Substack dealing with the Wyoming uh, Department of Education and dealing with Merrick Garland's son-in-law. And I first heard about this story early this year. And I've talked about it, but then you did such a fantastic article breaking it down. Tell us this bombshell you found that no one is paying attention to. So last fall in, in September of, of 2021, everyone will remember when the FBI uh, director, Merrick Garland, he I'm sorry, the uh, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland sick the FBI on parents who were standing up at school board meetings, and everyone was kind of shocked. Mm -hmm. Well, immediately it put the white-hot spotlight on his son-in-law's company that he co-founded called Panorama Education. And at OpenTheBooks.com, because of our data capture, we can follow the money. So I can tell you that where Panorama has a footprint being paid in K-12 school districts across the country, Panorama engages in a survey business. They, they'll, do, they'll conduct surveys, and the critics allege that the survey questions are such that it creates problems problems, quote-unquote, that a school board needs to solve with a new curriculum. The new curriculum is the critical race theory curriculum. So the, the critics allege that the panorama surveys are the gateway drug 
for CRT. And so, you know, we took a look and broke down their funding. So they raised $60 million in capital raises. And lo and behold, you know, it's the Zuckerbergs, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife. It's the widow of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. It is, um, it is, it, it are all, you know, it's all the uh, lefties from California, from Silicon Valley, that are the backers of this company. Okay, so what we found in that was that Wyoming had, on a statewide basis, had brought Panorama in to survey every single K through 12 student in the system in the in the red state of Wyoming, and this was done in a period where Julian Balo was the superintendent of education. A couple of months after we broke this report, Julian Balo was picked and appointed by the brand-new governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin. So Youngkin picks Balo to head up education in Virginia, which was particularly stunning since he won on a platform of empowering parents and cleaning up the curriculum. You know... This panorama, the New York Post, uh, I pulled up an article they wrote about this, about Zan Tanner or Alexander Tanner, if you use his correct name, the son-in-law of Merrick Garland. And with the questionnaire, they then give the school board a list of books to help them do the curriculum. And one of the books they suggest is one written by Bill Ayers. I mean, really? <laughs> really? And these school districts are falling for it because 50 out of the 100 largest school districts in the nation, you know, subscribe to Panorama. Exactly. And so that's why the critics allege that the survey business is the gateway drug to CRT. So just recently, Wyoming had a primary, a Republican primary, for the state uh, superintendent of education. It's an elected statewide position. And it was a competitive primary, and the two top vote-getters both pledged to extract Wyoming from that contract. So as far as we know, and I reached out for comment to Panorama, and they didn't dispute this, Wyoming is the first state to pull a state contract from Panorama Education. Well, now I am going to be making sure what is going on here in South Carolina. So I just put this article aside because, you know, I still do the Tea Party. And... Somewhere, someone's going to hear from me because my representative happens to be someone who runs a school. <laughs> so we're going to, I'm going to start with well, her. Just, and just send, say, make sure you send you me tell an email. Me. Send me mm-hmm. an email to adam at openthebooks.com, and we'll let you know everywhere in our database where there's a school district in South Carolina that is contracted with Panorama Education. Okay. I'm making a notation on that, and I'm putting that aside. Adam, at open the books. Of course, I, I should know by heart your, your email. Um, <laughs> just to shift the subject a little bit here, um, the militarization of our executive agencies. And when I was reading your, your bullet points, the top ten takeaways, I started pulling out the pen and paper, and I'm going, oh, my goodness. And it, it blew my mind. Um, one of the things that me is that 76 administrative agencies spent 110 million on guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment. Now, these agencies included the Internal Revenue Service, Veterans Affairs, Executive Office of the President, Small Business Administration. What the heck do they need guns for? The Smithsonian Institute, 
the Social Security Administration? I mean, OSHA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Uh, I'm sorry, I said OSHA, I meant NOAA. Animal Health Inspection? I mean, you've got to be kidding me. And well, I, this is the elf. I start. This is the alphabet soup of federal agencies, traditional regulatory agencies that are cr- now trying to criminalize what used to be white collar infractions or just fines. And so now they're arming up. And in a recent, the most recent five-year period available, ending in 2020, uh, we had, like you said, 110 million dollars in these 76 rank-and-file paper-pushing traditionally regulatory agencies arming up a special agent corps. Now you have another 27 traditional law enforcement agencies. Those are the ones that we always think about, uh, like out of the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security. They purchased almost $900 million worth of guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment during that five-year period. So you had almost a billion dollars of these agencies, these federal executive agencies outside of the Department of Defense literally arming up. Now, one of the ones that's particularly troubling that doesn't get enough attention is Health and Human Services. They're basically a grant-making agency. They support the soft social safety net amongst people who are down on their luck and they need a hand up in in life. So they, they support the welfare system. But they have nearly 500 special agents. In their gun locker, they have 1,300 weapons. And in the, since 2010, HHS has purchased 4 million rounds of ammunition. Yeah, it, it, it is mind-boggling. I mean, the IRS alone uh, has 2,159 special agents, and they spent over $21 million on guns. And I did the breakdown. That means approximately $10,000 per agent and two guns issued per agent. Now, you add in the 87,000 more that just got signed into legislation to the IRS that will be armed. That is mind-blowing. So that so makes 90,000 armed agents. So all 87,000 auditors uh, hopefully will not be armed, uh, but they are adding to their special agent class. And we know this because of Twitter. So last week, you and everybody listening to the program will probably remember when somebody screenshot the job posting for an IRS special agent. This is a man or a woman with badge, arrest, and firearm authority. As you said, there's nearly 2,200 of them. They're armed to the teeth with their gun locker has 4,500 weapons, which includes 621 shotguns. 539 long barrel rifles and 15 submachine guns. Okay, so the, the job posting had qualifications. One of the qualifications for the special agent was pretty troubling, and that's what trended on national Twitter till the IRS took it down. And it was you have to be willing to use deadly force. This is the tax agency. You know, they have something like 24 million. Uh, uh, 1040s, you know, uh, income tax filings that have yet to be processed. That is close to 10% of our population that files their, their thing still waiting to be processed. 
And instead of turning around and saying for these 87,000 to be only clerks, no, 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 they're going to arm them and give them police powers. That's scary. A regulatory well, agency scary. with police powers. You can probably tell from my last name, Angievsky, I'm Polish. We understand exactly, you know, when you push socialism, when you push, push you know, quasi-communism, it always has to be backed up at the barrel of a weapon. And so that's, that's the situation that we face in the country today. So, look, I'm from Illinois. It is the Super Bowl of corruption. But one of our most famous citizens in all of human history, his name was Abraham Lincoln. In the 1840s, 1850s, Lincoln lamented his letters to his friend that all the big issues of the day had been solved and there was nothing left for his generation to do. And if you felt that way over the course of the last 20 years, disabuse yourself of those thoughts because now is the time to get engaged. The big questions and the ongoing concern of the United States of America are happening now. Yeah. And when, when we have 103 agencies, federal agencies outside the Department of Defense, Defense spending $2.7 billion on guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment. And when we have a government that is becoming more and more mil- militarized and are using those agencies, like the Department of Justice that we saw with Trump at Mar-a-Lago or the IRS with the Tea Party movement, uh, using that to stifle the people. Now with 87,000 going into the IRS, you and I are next. The guys listening to the show, they're next. And what was that, that saying from the Holocaust? First they came from, for the, the uh, gypsies and no one said anything. Then they came for the Jews, no one said anything. And then they came from me and there was no one left to say anything. And that's going to be the, what's going to be with us. If we don't speak up now, there will be no one left to defend us. So if the 87,000 auditors, if they're very lazy, and look, um, federal bureaucrats get 44 days of paid time off. That's nearly nine weeks a year. Nearly but not quite. Every single work week is a four-day work week and a three-day weekend, okay? So if these 87,000 auditors are lazy and if they, only do, if they only do one audit a month, that's an extra one million audits. It's staggering, the scope of what they're going to do in terms of auditing. And you know, they have unlimited resources, taxpayer resources being unleashed against taxpayers. And we're going to have to hire, you know, our CPAs, our accountants, our, our tax counselors, our tax lawyers to defend ourselves. It's not a fair fight. No, especially when you have a small person like me that can't afford the CPA or the tax accountant or the tax lawyer. You are at the mercy of defending yourself against a huge bureaucracy. And you're not going to come out on the winning end side of that. The, the little guy, well, there's, the little is, there's no way is going to be hit. Yeah. And there's no way for the IRS to break even an $80 billion congressional appropriation. Let's just walk through some numbers. I mean, there, there could have been some key reforms at the IRS. For example, for the last 10 years, the IRS has admitted that one out of every $4 spent by the IRS doled out on the earned income tax credit program goes to people who are unqualified. When we asked the IRS spokesman, hey, how can you, how can you know the figure, 80, $18 billion, 
and that these people are unqualified, and yet the checks continue to roll year after year, and they said they didn't have the budget to rein it in. Okay, so you could have gone after the improper and mistaken payments of $18 billion. Um, I get that. You, you, uh, you know, the, there were, the IRS destroyed this spring 30 million paper income tax returns. So they didn't really look at it. They just trusted everyone, which was good. People pay their taxes. People are honest on their returns. But if you filed digitally, you could have been audited. But 30 million people that fire, filed on paper, they were never audited, and the backup returns on paper were destroyed. Okay, so you could have put some budget and some resources to, to auditing the fraudsters that filed on paper, the obvious fraudsters, right, where you could get a return on investment. But that's not what's going on. They threw $80 billion at the IRS, 87,000 uh, auditors now. They're doubling the workforce headcount of the IRS from about 79,000, adding 87,000 people. I mean, it's absolutely stunning the, uh, the amount of taxpayer money they're throwing at this agency, and the agency is going to turn around and use it against taxpayers, all of us. Well, folks, if you weren't pissed off before, this will piss you off even more because there's an assault on small business. Now, the one agency, the U.S. Import-Export Bank, which is supposed to be helping support small businesses to grow and create jobs, that majority of the money is not going to any small business. As a matter of fact, a small amount of them is, is going to small business. But who's actually getting all the money from the Import-Export Bank? Oh, please, tell, don't tell me it's something like a big corporation. <laughs> Am I exactly. sarcasm what? grip? <laughs> yes. So one company, Boeing, their deals got $66 billion worth of U.S. taxpayer financing, guarantees, insurance, cheap financing for overseas transactions so they could sell planes. Delta Airlines will say that that destabilized the domestic and, international and domestic flyers like Delta flying internationally because now they have to compete against a lower cost of business with foreign carriers, and they get Delta gets priced out of markets, which costs American jobs. These state, you know, so how is propping up dictators, authoritarian regimes, which is what we're doing through the Export-Import Bank, and destabilizing domestic industries, how is that good for growth? But that's exactly what's going on. So Boeing, a single Fortune 100 corporation, took $66 billion. There was, there was $201 billion of total lending since 2007. Boeing basically got one out of every $3 through that program, you can basically say that the Export-Import Bank is the bank of Boeing. Boeing, yep. <laughs> I mean, General Electric, Betchel. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Let's not forget about the countries this money is going to, such as number one is Nigeria, number two is China, followed by Russia and Turkey. Uh, I don't see any allies in this, do you? I don't see anyone friendly to the United States receiving our taxpayer money to prop them up. So taxpayer dollars through the Export-Import Bank continue in the first quarter of 2022 to flow on transactions into China. They continue to flow on transactions into Saudi Arabia. Into Russia, we gainfully funded those transactions through 2015. And then, then thankfully, the Export-Import Bank transactions into Russia to help prop up Putin and that regime, uh, those stopped. 
but then you have, you know, the transactions into Nigeria. Nigeria is ranked 149th least transparent, most corrupt countries in the world. So what kind of guarantee do taxpayers have of any transparency that the money goes where it's supposed to go, where the transactions are supposed to be fulfilled on the other side, we're all holding the bag if those transactions and loans fail. And the taxpayers need to understand that. Of course the loans don't get paid back. You know that. I know that. So we are, we, it's our dime. And no wonder why we have massive inflation, because our money doesn't mean anything to anyone unless it's our enemy or this administration trying to buy off our enemy. And it, so we did a report. You, we did we did a report a year ago on U.S. foreign aid, and the, you know we've all been told by the by the mainstream media that foreign aid is a drop in the bud, bucket compared against the budget. You know the trillions of dollars that we spend in our in our federal budget, and that point is true. But here's the frame that we found: if U.S. foreign aid in the in total was a state government. We ranked U.S. foreign aid on the payments from Washington, D.C. into the 50 state governments. And U.S. foreign aid would rank third only behind California and New York. So it's a big amount. It's about $50 billion a year. The United Nations and 57 of its U.N. entities soak up about $10 billion of that every single year. And far too often our voice at the U.N. is muffled by places like China, Russia, and other authoritarian regimes. Iran? <laughs> Should we say Iran, too? Yeah. Seriously. Oh, man. Uh, your, your website, openthebooks.com, is a fantastic website. And the work you do, especially when you work with my friend Mark Tapscott, is absolutely through the wall. Uh, we were talking, Mark and I, on the, on the show a couple of times, about the funding to the NIH. And I had Peter Navarro on. And I said, all right, I'm going to get you going, Peter. I said, I'm going to drop one name. And the one name will guarantee to get Peter to blow his top, Dr. Fauci. <laughs> well, he not you just... know, it was my reporting. It was my reporting in January of 2021 when we found in our federal salary data that Fauci was the number one most highly compensated, top-paid federal bureaucrat, even out earning the president of the United States. So Fauci, Dr. Fauci, out-earns the president. Well, many people don't know that Mrs. Fauci, Christine Grady, she out-earns the vice president. She is, at NIH, Fauci's employer, she's the top bioethicist. So while Fauci was running health care policy on the pandemic, crafting that, Mrs. Fauci had his back over in the ethics office. She was studying these policies and coming out with reports on the morality and the ethics of the very policies that her husband was crafting on the pandemic. They live a conflict of interest at the breakfast table, at the office, and back home at the dinner table. That must be interesting bedroom talk, too, <laughs> right? Let's see who we can screw and how we can get more money in our paycheck. <laughs> Let's see what and when, uh, when Dr. Fauci retires, you know, he just, he just came in with, the, with his roadmap to retirement in January of 2025, we uh, quickly crunched the numbers. Fauci will retire on the largest pension in U.S. federal government history. His first-year pension amount of 414000 will exceed the salary of the President of the United States at 400000 
Well, we're not even talking about the grants and uh, what's, what's the other thing? Um, when they help develop uh, either a a product or a drug, they get a why why am I have this big big brain fart? Um, a royalty. Right, and then royalties can be handed down in their will to their family members. So this goes in perpetuity. Right. So we we broke this story. We filed the Freedom of Information Act last September. Like everybody else in the country, we questioned just how close is big government to big pharma. During the pandemic, we all we all started to have a healthy suspicion that they were very close. So we filed the Freedom of Information Act request with the National Institutes of Health for their third-party paid royalty database. We noticed that it hadn't had sunshine in 17 years, back to 2005, when the Associated Press requested the database. They got the whole thing in full. Well, NIH, they, uh, they ignored our request, so we sued them with Judicial Watch. Starting in February, they started to produce. They admitted they were holding, over the course of the last decade, 3,000 pages of line-by-line royalty. And so these are royalty payments when a taxpayer-paid government scientist invents something while he works for the federal government, for the National Institutes of Health, their name actually goes on the license or the patent, and they get a piece of the action, Now, if you, which is different. Like if you work for Pfizer in the private sector, if you're a scientist and invent something, Pfizer gets the royalties. Not so with mm-hmm. the government scientists. They get to participate. So we wanted to know what company is paying the freight, who's getting, how much, and for what invention. And so here's what NIH is producing. We can... We can see the top line. So over 10 years, we estimate when we get the whole thing finally, and we'll get the whole, they're they're doing 10% a month for 10 months, uh, there'll be about $400 million that flowed on hidden third-party paid royalties, enriching the agency and its scientists and its leadership over the course of the last decade. NIH doles out every year about $30 billion worth of grants, and every 10 years now, we can say about $400 million flows the other way from the industry back into the agency, enriching everybody. But here's what we don't know. They're blanking out and redacting the name of the third-party payer, think pharmaceutical company. So we don't know who's cutting the checks. We don't know the amount to the individual scientists because they're blanking and redacting that. And they're blanking and redacting the invention, the invention number and the license number, the patent number and the license number. So... So there's still a lot of questions. Five U.S. Senators on Homeland Security wrote an oversight letter to NIH demanding an unredacted database, and they were ignored as well. Well, Adam, it it is a lot to unravel. I wish we had more time, so I do have to have you come back. So, Adam uh, Andrzejewski of OpenTheBooks.com. Folks, get onto that website because you can see locally, statewide, and federally where your money is going and whose pocket it's going into. You do a lot of hard work, and thank you for working with my friend Mark Tapscott at the Epic Times. Between the two of you, you're kicking butt. I'm telling you that right now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, God bless you for the hard work you do, and we will be talking soon. Sounds good. All right. Now, 
going to bring on someone who has not been on the show before, but he is also responsible for sending me a lot of these fantastic guests that we have every week. I don't always tap every single week into him, which is my bad, but he has so many good ones, and I have so many other people like Adam uh, Andievsky from Open the Books. want to welcome to the show from Publis PR, the CEO and the publicist to the A-list in the conservative media, A.J. Rice. Good afternoon, A.J. How is that for an introduction? Well, I'm loving it. Annie, really. <laughs> Fantastic. It's great to be here. You know, there's always an adjective before my name, and it's never a good one, so I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I started thinking back, you know, how long have you and I been working together? You know, when you first started with the Publish PR, um, God, I mean, that's been a long, be about long a decade time. at this point. Yeah. At this point, yes, no, it has I would to say be about because 10 years. at that point, yeah, yeah, because I had that attitude like, uh, well, it never hurts to pick up the phone and call someone to invite them on, and then you start sending me some of the same people that I had been calling, and I said, wow, we're on the same page. Yeah, we are absolutely on the same page. Hey, we're, cooking, you know, up, we're pe- cooking up great content in the kitchen, right? Yeah, and people don't realize that you also were behind the scenes producing uh, shows like Laura Ingram, Monica Crowley. You were instrumental in helping uh, put the blaze together for their broadcast. Uh, you are a jack of all trades. Well, look, I've been in the um, conservative trenches probably, I mean, at this point, 25 years. You know, I think I was probably started when I was 16 on the uh, Dole Kemp campaign. Um before I could even vote, right? So, but no, I mean, as far as recent history, uh, I worked on Capitol Hill, and then Ingram hired me out of there. So I was working for a Republican mm. congressman, and and then I went and worked for the great lady as her, first as her assistant, then as her associate producer, then as her executive producer, slash on-air foil. So, I mean, if you were listening to the Laura Ingram show, between 2006 and 2011, you probably heard her on air talking to Matt and AJ. Well, I was the AJ. <laughs> well, you're our AJ, too. And you've got an excellent new That's book right. out, The Woking Dead. Uh, your volume one, uh, Publis Prose, volume one, How Society's Vogue Virus Destroys Our Culture, with a foreword from our friend Jason Matera. I mean, you put together a series of essays that you've written over the years. And um, go, starting back, as I believe, as far as uh, 2018 through today. And how many different uh, periodicals do you write for? Well, I mean, at this point, I'm, we're in the 30s. I mean, the book is, you don't have to read the book cover to cover, right? So there's 10 sections, and there's like 97, give or take, vignettes in the in the book itself. And some of them... Some of them are new. Some of them are updated versions of, of some things we've talked about in the past. And, you know, you can jump around. You know, some are humorous. Some are, are horrifying about what's happening to your country. So, and Jason Matera, it's funny, um, he wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Obama Zombies. And yep. he's a buddy of mine. He's taking a little time off from doing media because he, he has two sets of twins. I told him he needs to go to an insane asylum. Um, but uh, <laughs> he wrote a book called The Obama Zombie. And uh, what we're dealing with today is sort of the next generation of them. 
So I brought him, uh, that's who The Woking Dead is. So I brought him back to do the forward to the book, which is called The Return of the Obama Zombies. So when you're talking about the reanimated corpse in the White House, the man who falls off bikes, okay, can't put a suit jacket on, you're dealing with a shadow third term of Barack Obama. And, you know, we've got Hussein in the membrane again here in this country. The thing is, we're not even getting the talented Obama people. We're not even getting the, like, the, the top-shelf kooks from the Obama uh, era. Because all those people have moved on, and they're all you know, working on K Street or sitting on corporate boards or babbling to no audience over on CNN. We're dealing with the third stringers here, the backbenchers, okay? the people that play defense on their heels. And once Trump left, you know, they all sort of scurry, scurried in there to their old desks so they could burnish their resume because that really, and I'm talking to you live, Annie, from Swamp Central, and I can tell you, mm-hmm. you know, after I take my formaldehyde bath every day from these people, you know, this is a game here. It's a game. It's a turnstile. And it's all being paid for from Annie's audience. I hope the audience is happy because we're paying for this garbage. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're hoping that there's going to be a red tidal wave coming in. But the problem is we can have a red tidal wave. We can turn over the elected officials. But unless we turn over what's in the swamp, all those little alphabet soup agencies start getting the riffraff out of their clean house. And I think that's the one thing Trump didn't do. He didn't go in and clean and turn everyone over in the White House first well, the plan and was, then go after yeah, the agency. The plan was to do that. Look, here's what we know. The fish rots from the head, but but there's little baby fish behind the big fish. And you can, you can change your cabinet secretaries. And look, Trump's biggest problem was the fact that he didn't come from a governor's office or a Senate office where he had a bunch of loyalists. He rolled in there with his family because he was the first person to not be a general uh, to get ever elected president that wasn't a politician prior. So the only people he could trust was his family. So he rolls in there with them. And I hate to say it, but Ryan's Priebus and some of the other schmucks, like Paul Ryan, they shoehorned Rex Tillerson on him. I mean, do you realize... I mean, I can't believe Tillerson was the better bet, but do you realize we almost had Mitt Romney? Oh, you just broke up. Did we just lose AJ? Curtis, did we lose AJ? I think we just lost him. Well, he should did be calling Curtis? back. Give us, let's, let's give him a second. Okay. But, I mean, uh, he's, still, he was on a he's great still up there. Yeah, we just lost AJ. He lost, hmm. dropped his signal completely. Um, hopefully we can get him back. Uh, AJ just realized yeah, that there's I'm no sure sound here. Um, yeah. I don't know. And, you know, but, well, you but got, I mean, that was the number one problem was personnel. AJ, we lost you for a couple of minutes there. You dropped really? it when you were saying, do you realize you would have had Mitt Romney, and then you went, boom. Hmm. <laughs> well, look, you, you would have had Mitt Romney as Secretary of State. And, 
you know, it's a, it, I mean, the, the, these people that were around him, these establishment types, they shoehorned a lot of people that were not MAGA people into that cabinet um, in the first couple of years. And it, we could never recover. We never recovered from it. So going forward, you can't just pick, you know, the secretaries that are MAGA people. You have to strip mine 10 layers underneath of them because they're the career bureaucrats. They're the little woke, you know, totalitarian middle management. They've all got to go. Well, I think a perfect example of America's finally seeing about what's going on behind the scenes in the swamp was this raid on Trump's uh, home in Mar-a-Lago. And I don't think anyone expected our government to go as far as it did. Well, look, here's, here's, here's what's going on there. We have been put through a soft tyranny here. We've been put through a form of authoritarianism. They, it was a medical virus. It was used to basically control whether we have a prom, whether we have a graduation, whether we leave the house, whether we ride on an airplane, inject this in your body, stick this on your face. Whatever it was, they controlled us that way first. Then they controlled us culturally with wokeness. Wokeness comes in many forms. It comes in the form of cancel culture. It comes in the form of critical race theory. So they took our fun, right? So we've been kind of going through this weird sort of fascist dress rehearsal every day where they take little chunks out of us incrementally. They take an inch one day, take a mile the next day, and they, and they wait to see who's going to pop their head up and complain. Now, half of us are drones. We're the woken dead who don't complain. The other half of us, we're ready to scream bloody murder, right? So I never thought in a million years we'd get to this point where they raid the president's house so they can see who's complaining and then go after them. I mean, this is where we're at. They're not afraid. Most of us are complying with some of this garbage. And it looks to me like the FBI is basically the personal, you know, police of the Democratic Party. Well, they're already going after the uh, mom and pops when they go at the uh, school board meetings. They've gone after the Tea Party with the IRS. And I'm fortunate I was when they asked us to become a 501c3 when we formed our Tea Party back in 2009, I was one of the ones that fought against it and... Fortunately, I won, because otherwise I would have been one of the ones the IRS went after. Instead, they went after my friend Joe Dugan, Diane Hardy, who testified before Congress about being attacked by the IRS. But Lois Lerner never got penalized for that. You know, the average citizen gets hurt, nope. but not, not Lois Lerner. Uh, we, no. we can go I mean, on some and of the, on I mean, and look, on. Uh, yeah, I mean, Eric Holder was held in contempt. I mean, contempt of Congress. I didn't, I didn't see anybody bursting into his home. I mean, this nope. is, there's a giant double standard here, okay? They are going to keep coming, waves and waves of waves of these people, okay? You, they've got their friends, their propaganda friends in the media. They've got ath- professional athletes and Hollywood people on their side amplifying their garbage. They've got big tech, the little digital brown shirts that run around smothering ideas in the cradle before they can even make it out there. They're smothering truths deplatforming people, demonetizing people, coming to Annie's house, knocking on the door. No, they haven't done that yet. But I got booted off of LinkedIn a couple weeks ago. 
Annie, I got booted off of LinkedIn a couple weeks ago for sharing stories from our clients, clients that you've had on, Gregory Wrightstone and Naomi Wolf. Uh, he's a dear friend. That's all we yes. did. We, well, yeah, it's insane. So, yeah, I got put in the penalty booth. <laughs> well, Gregory will tell you I was his first. <laughs> and it's a private joke between the oh, two of us. Oh, wow. I, I, I was I the have very to first. The details on that one. I don't know what's yeah. going on. What are you talking a... about first, sweetheart? What are you talking about? <laughs> I even had him at our tea party meeting here in South Carolina. So the very yeah, first interview he, he ever did, yeah, very first interview he ever did was with me. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, look, you've got these legs of the stool from the left, and they're all working in concert. And they're trying to control our behavior. They're trying to control our speech. And you have to fight back. You have to vote with your wallet yeah. and vote with your feet. Yeah, uh, that is true. That is true. That's why I have some of the great guests I have on, like uh, Open the Books. and uh, We're going to have Paul Manafort next week. Uh, his book is excellent, excellent read. If you want to know what's going on behind the scenes, what went on with Ukraine and his arrest and conviction, Oh, man, that's really down and dirty. But your well, book look, I mean, is it's a classic sick. example. I mean, Paul, Paul's our client, and he really was a political prisoner. I mean, this is stuff out of Ho Chi Minh. This is stuff out of Castro. This is, this is, this is you know, brown shirt, East Germany type stuff. And he was held. And let's be honest, they were leaning on him. They wanted him to say something that wasn't true. Come on, say this about the president. Say, this is a little preview for your audience. Say this about the president and we'll leave you alone. Say this about the president and we'll leave your daughter alone. Say this about the president and we'll leave your wife alone. I mean, this is, they think they're Elliot Ness. They're not Elliot Ness. They're more like Capone. Right. Look what they did to uh, Colonel, uh, I'm sorry, General Flynn. They went after his son. Uh, KT McFarland, Correct. they show up at her house when she's there alone. Um, we can go down the list. Rick Gates, what they did to and they, him. They, they grabbed uh, Peter Navarro at the airport to make a fool out of him. They went into Roger Stone's home at 5 in the morning like they were going in to take out bin Laden. Mm-hmm. I mean, what they did yeah. what they did at the end of uh, to, to, to uh, Stone is like the last scene in uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when the SWAT team comes running in. Oh, That's what they did to Stone. Yeah, but in, in Lampoon's movie, they didn't notify CNN first. In this case, you know, our government <laughs> notified CNN an hour ahead of time so they can get the trucks there in time. You know, I'm surprised they didn't do that to Peter Navarro, who has been on the show in the past, uh, <laughs> along with Roger Stone when he came out with his book uh, on Obama. But your book, like I said, is great because it's all a compilation of all of the essays that you've written for all the different magazines and I, I have little pink notes little, those little stickums on the book so people can see that yes I really do read the book that, <laughs> that we're talking about um, <laughs> I appreciate that thank you and I kind of like got a kick out of it when you were talking about Gen Z and that was on page 161 where you wrote give me Amazon Prime or give me death and uh, I was talking to some friends who are trying to hire people to work for their company, their businesses. And every oh, last it. one is saying basically the same thing that you're saying in this essay. We have raised a generation that coming up behind us that is ill-equipped to face the world head on. 
where our generation and the generations before us had no fear about facing the world head on and face reality. We didn't get triggered if someone used the wrong pronoun on us. I mean, we may have Correct. put them the bird. Well, uh, here's but the we thing, and I think, I think boomers, boomers don't really know this and Gen Xers don't know it, although you know, it all really depends on, on who the parents of, of which generation are. Uh, understand this. Millennials get this bad rap. They're also called Gen Y. Most millennials, their parents are boomers. And who are the boomers' parents? The World War II people, right? The greatest generation. And the thing about the difference between millennials and Gen Zers, okay, is that millennials have defined their entire existence through purpose. They did go out into the world. They used technology to, and they're really the first generation to have some of these apps and phones and things as adults. They, they used it to build e-commerce sites. Gen Z is not obsessed with purpose. Gen Z is obsessed with identity, okay? And there's a huge difference. And the crazy part is they're obsessed with identity, and yet they have none. They have no identity of their own. They hide behind their online avatars. They think TikTok is real life. They have no interest in traveling. Millennials got a bum rap because they were traveling everywhere and taking pictures of themselves in cute outfits in Hawaii or here or there. Yeah, you could critique them and say, well, that might be vapid or that might be a stupid, you know, whatever. But in a lot of cases, they're selling products through Instagram. Gen Z's not doing that. And look, I'm a millennial. I'm, a, I'm an older millennial. I'm a geriatric millennial. Um, so I'm like on the border there with with, with well, Gen I, I got X you and beat. millennial, right? I got you beat. Yeah. Well, my first All I'm saying is you're looking for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'm a Reagan baby. But the point is, if you're looking for a generation that's coming up, that I, I and look, there are a lot of millennials that did vote for Obama. Okay, they they are now. They were dopey twenty year olds. There's a lot of boomers that voted for George McGovern and then eight years later voted for Ronald Reagan. So you're starting to see the boomers raised these people. Okay? You can tell. Millennials were raised by boomers. Boomers were raised by World War II. Okay? You can, there's a straight line of success through all three of those generations. And they were and all three of those generations were enormous, you know, for their time. And understand mm-hmm. something. Millennials have been hit with a lot of stuff. They've been hit with 9-11. They've been hit with the housing crisis in 08. They were hit with this stupid virus from China, and they're trying to buy homes, and they're trying to have children. You know, they're waiting a little longer. They're not doing it in their 20s. They're doing it in their 30s because of the runaway inflation and how much everything freaking costs because of the way Washington operates and because of crony capitalism. So understand this. There is a future. Most millennials are, are rejecting political correctness, and um, the woking dead that I'm talking about are a little bit younger. They all want free stuff. They all want to hide in their homes, and they all want to come and change our language and cancel us. Well, so one of these days, they're going to have a huge wake-up call because when they can't get their Xanax or whatever they use to calm themselves down or all of a sudden they find out that uh, cannabis, you know, is no longer legal in their state uh, and they have to face reality, 
there's going to be a major crisis in this country because they're not going to know what the heck to do and how to solve their problems. No, I mean, look, uh, you've got a reanimated corpse in the White House. You've got a cackling, lightweight Mary Sue as vice president. I mean, let's face it. Obama pulled Biden off the trash heap, and Biden did the same thing with Kamala. I mean, these two, both Biden's campaign in 08 and Kamala against Biden, I mean, they were out of the race in December. These are not the best and brightest. These are not the people that sign the front of paychecks. These are the people that we've, that some taxpayer has been paying the salary of for decades. For decades. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, look, we're... I'm sorry, Curtis. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to take this in another direction just briefly, though, but I'm hearing a lot about Mike Pence. Uh, what are you? What are your thoughts about him running against um, Trump, Mike Pence? Well, look, Mike Pence is a very nice man. All right. In fact, Mike Pence was a fill-in host for Laura Ingram when I was the executive producer. So I've, I spent probably twenty. He probably filled in, I don't know, seven times, times three hours. So I've produced the Mike Pence show twenty-one hours of my life. And he's kind of a different guy now. He's very handled and managed. He's obviously trying to uh, trying to master that Reagan affectation and how he talks. It's obvious. He's watching tapes of Reagan talk, and he's trying to mimic it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I I watch I watch tapes. Uh, I listen to tapes of Lenny Bruce and try to mimic that. Anyway, but but <laughs> with Pence running, <laughs> I, I got to be honest with you. Well, you know. Well, George Carlin. Anyway, they don't know who that is either, right? So point is, um, with Pence, I don't think he should run. He's not here to save the republic. He he ended up on that ticket the same way Rex Tillerson ended up Secretary of State. You know, Um, they were trying to calm the uh, establishment, have a little marriage. And look, it kind of worked for Reagan. When Reagan rolled in, they called him the California Mafia. You know, Weinberger and Meese, Schultz, right? So he takes Bush, and if you take Bush as your running mate, you get uh, Jim Baker comes with him. And they, they were able to work it out, fine. But the Republican Party has changed. And Pencism is not a thing and will never be a thing. So I think he should try to spare us and himself and his family from, you know, uh, uh, a tar and feathering, <laughs> you know, I, I, I would, I would not like to see, I would like to not see him run because um, this is going to be ugly, guys. Okay. Oh yeah. There's not going to be any more sycophants. There's not going to be any more sycophants. You're get, you're going to get the 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 peak Steve Bannon version of Trump. It's going to be scorched earth and. Pence is not an obstacle. He'll get scorched in public, just like little Marco and Lion Ted, if you can remember those nicknames. So I'm just telling you, I would like to not see that happen. But, you know, the the game's afoot. 
Well, you know, there's you know, so their much dream to talk ticket about is, you know, book. Pence and Liz Cheney. Yeah. <laughs> Liz will end up probably on uh, MSNBC or CNN hosting a, a show and then get canceled just like uh, Brian Setzer just did. <laughs> yeah, they'll be doing a show together. <laughs> yeah. Right? Delta and Cheney. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I think she would want her name first. Yeah, you put a blonde wig on Delta, he kind of looks like Cheney. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, that sight. No, I'm not going to sleep tonight now because I, if I close my eyes, I'm going to have that sight on my eyelids. No, no. <laughs> oh, man. AJ, there's so much to talk about in your book because you cover just about everything. And you, you basically give people a handbook on how to deal with this wokeness that we're facing. And I, I, I was cracking up uh, reading about the Santa Claus. Ron DeSantis, who's the gift that keeps on giving to us in the conservative side. I mean, this guy is is mini me Trump, uh, even down to his yeah, mannerisms. I mean, look, in- absolutely. So the thing with Trump is, you don't just get Trump. He's kind of like Andrew Jackson. I mean, after after Jackson came on the scene, you had a whole generation of copycat Jacksons and mini Jacksons. He changed the way the presidency was looked at. Okay, he made it populist. He made it, he opened the White House. They had a party. There were horses running through the White House. It was crazy. Okay, it was crazy. Ironically, a little fun fact, Andrew Jackson and Donald Trump are, the, I believe, the only two presidents where one of their parents was born in another country. So they weren't born here. So they're, oh, look, they're going to always be irrevocably tied together. I mean, it, uh, Trump put a giant Andrew Jackson painting on the wall in the Oval Office when he was there. Um, so, yeah, DeSantis is a, a disciple of Trumpism. You know, he's got a different pedigree. He's got a different demeanor to some degrees. But, you know, you're going you're gonna to have a couple generations of this. You know, Reagan changed the dialogue. Um, Andrew Jackson changed the dialogue. Trump changed the dialogue of, on how this is how Republicans and conservatism and populism is handled. I mean, watching the Cheneys fall apart in front of our faces this week was sort of the final death knell of the old way. And in some way, oh, yeah. sort of the final, the final death knell of the people that were hanging on to Reagan's cape, okay? Ronald Reagan's cape. They don't have capes of their own. They were hanging on Reagan's cape. And now they're, they've been sort of brushed aside, you know, Never to return unless they want to be on The View. Well, people can get your book by going to Amazon as well as to um, the Woking. What is the website? Uh, I had it written down here. Oh, good Lord, You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million. Yeah, you can go to the Woking Dead book. Yeah, we we can go there. Um, Yeah, the Woking Dead book. I mean, any of those places, Walmart, Target.com, we're on all of them. Well, I have a, a link uh, on the show description so people listening to the archives or watching later on, they can catch the archive over on YouTube and Facebook and half a dozen other websites. I even forget where I am half the time. And they click on The Woking Dead, and it goes straight to Amazon so they can buy the book there. Um, it is a fantastic book. There's so much more to talk about it because you wrote about China inside there, and that's something I've been harping on since God knows how long uh, 
since I met Gordon Chang uh, back in 2012, I've sure. been harping on what's going on in China. And I love his wife. She's so adorable. Um, I, you don't handle him, do you? No, but I'm friends with him. Do you? I've known him for years. He's a good man. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He's a really good man. We don't um, handle but, him uh, yet. It's, you know, the thing with... The thing with Publius PR is all roads lead here. Because if we don't have you yet, we'll have you later. Oh, maybe I'll put in a good word for you. <laughs> I appreciate that. And you know I have done that in the past for you, too. Uh, always fun working Absolutely. with you. Uh, people we appreciate out you. If, if, we appreciate your audience. You guys are fighters. <clears throat> and it's really, it's really been my pleasure to be here with you today. I can't, right. I can't believe I've been doing this... Uh, since two, 12 years, 12 years this month. Wow. Holy cow. Time flies when you're having fun. Mm-hmm. AJ, it has been an absolute blast. we got to have you back. I mean, I, you send me your clients. Well, send me yourself once in a while. How does that sound? <laughs> I'll be back. Don't worry. I'll, I'll come out from behind the curtain again. Ah, you're threatening me. I love it. <laughs> All right, AJ Rice. <laughs> Check him out uh, at uh, the Woking Dead book. And get it at uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's a must-read. God bless you, AJ. Thanks, Take guys. Care. Appreciate it. All right. All right. All right. We got our, our final victim coming back onto the show from the Heritage Foundation. Oh, not final guest. Our next guest, my buddy Mark Tapscott for the Epic Times. Boy, am I j- jumping ahead all over the place today, Mark. You know I'm nuts. You know I'm absolutely crazy. Yeah, I'm glad you're very interesting to listen to. <laughs> sure. That's a good thing. <laughs> oh man. Um I don't even know where to start with you. There's so much crap going on. And we had um your buddy Adam from Open the Books on just a little bit before AJ came on. So oh, good. we were talking about you. So if your ears were burning <laughs> and he said you have now entered the Hall of Fame. <laughs> he said he said you now have won the award for the uh, Freedom of Information Act Hall of Fame. You have now been inducted as the number one in the Hall of Fame what? for the Freedom of Information Act. Actually, that happened so in 2006. <laughs> well, top story, we're still talking about the raid at Mar-a-Lago. And yeah. by the hour, new stuff breaks out. And it's hard to keep up with everything that's going on. This has really opened up the American public on the true swamp that we're fighting. Yeah, in so many ways. Um, I've actually been on the beach all day today, so bring me up to date on what's happened today. Well, someone, I'm trying to find the article. I had pulled it up before, but there was an article comparing what happened to Mar-a-Lago and Trump with his records, which, by the way, he was in negotiations with the National Archive. He had already turned over some documents they were requesting, and he was working on others um, when they did this raid. Uh, but there yeah. was a thing about, I don't know if I was able to print it out. I think I just simply read it. Um, I forget who had it. But there was an instant back in 2012 where the judge, I believe, was Amy ja- uh, Amy Jackson, she made a ruling because uh, Bubba Clinton, Bill Clinton, had some tapes in his sock drawer that came yeah. from when he was, he was in the White House. And the ruling was is that if it's 
the president's documents, whether it's recordings or whatever, it is the president's property. And you, yes. the Department of Justice has no right to go after it. So how did that president not apply to Trump? Well, very easily. They just didn't. They just ignored it. <laughs> um, I, I tell you, I think the most interesting thing that I've heard in the last 24 or 48 hours is Judge Reinhardt, um, Magistrate Judge Reinhardt, um, telling the Department of Justice to submit um, a proposed uh, <clears throat> version of the affidavit. You know, he he said. Show me what you want to withhold, but let's 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 make public all the rest of it. I think that's a very interesting move, and I think it's it's Reinhardt's way of saying to the Department of Justice, you've got to put something out there so you can say you you made the affidavit public. But since I'm going to decide whether or not your proposed um, deletions are. Um, uh, going to be acceptable or not, I can take care of um, keeping from the public the things that you want to keep from the public, the most important things. So I suspect we will see a, uh, come a week from now, um, a somewhat, actually a massively redacted version of the affidavit, which probably will provide a little bit of insight, but not a whole lot more, because they're not going to make public the most important facts about it. Now, what really got me, though, is the very judge that issued the search warrant is the one who's ruling on this this case. Shouldn't he have yeah. re, re, recused himself? Shouldn't that have been well, turned well, over to someone else? Well, he, I can't do a judgment on my own search warrant. Well... Where he should have recused himself was from the very beginning when the Department of Justice first came to him and said, hey, we want you to approve this search warrant because he's a Democratic contributor, number one, including to Joe Biden, and we are talking about a search warrant to search the House, the private quarters of Joe Biden's quite possible 2024 opponent. So, you know, he was biased and in my view, unqualified to rule on the search warrant in the first place. And we haven't even talked yet about the fact that he uh, was Jeffrey, one of Jeffrey Epstein's uh, guys' lawyer. And um, if you've seen the photograph that's been circulating, uh, it was very close to uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. So he shouldn't have been on this case in the first place. So we're wondering now then, does Trump have a case where he can have the search warrant thrown out and then all of what they confiscated becomes fruit of the poisonous tree, so it's, it's evidence they can't use? Well, Good question. I, I, I think that's a great question, and in, and in a very real sense, it's the question at the heart of this whole controversy. Um, my guess is, yeah, they probably... Um, can find an appeals court level judge who would rule in Trump's favor, but then the Department of Justice would appeal it to the Supreme Court. And I think this is going to end up in the Supreme Court in any case. Um, And once it's in the Supreme Court, I have a suspicion that I think the court, as it presently stands, 
would uphold the precedents and tell the Department of Justice, no, you can't do that, you screwed up. Um, but then the Department of Justice, people in the Department of Justice, would begin a heavy-duty leaking campaign. Um, so, you know, any way, any way you go, Trump is going to be the object of um, serious attacks. So that's, that's a fact of life. Well, they're trying to do to him what they did to everyone that has been around him, such as General Flynn, Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos. You know, you you go down the list, and they've gone yeah. after every single person that has has anything to do with him. So if you can't get him one way, they're going to try to get him another way. And in yeah. the court of public opinion, they will try him and convict him. Well, I think that's pretty accurate, and that's why, um, you know, there are a growing number of people, conservatives, who um, certainly support Trump's policies and, and admire his um, his guts and his courage for taking on the swamp. But the political reality is that, um, for better or worse, um, even if he does get reelected in 2024, the fear is that it will just be a repeat of his first term, one scandal after one fake scandal after another that distracts the country and minimizes what, you know, progress could be achieved. So some number of folks on the right are beginning to say maybe we need to take a different route. Laura Ingram on Fox did uh, just, I believe, yesterday. Well, you know, you wrote an article recently uh about uh, Russ Boyd, who had served yeah. in the Office of Management and Budget. And he was on the right path, but he didn't have enough time to implement uh, a lot of good policies that would weed out the swamp and eliminate a lot of these civil service positions that are causing all this, these problems. Um, yeah. What was his premise? Well, Russ Bott is somebody I have a great deal of respect for because... When I was in the Reagan administration some years ago, uh, I spent two and a half years at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management uh, as part of the Reagan team there trying to reform the uh, federal civil service. And we had some successes, not nearly as much as we wanted. But one thing that I learned very quickly at um, the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, is that the career civil service, and there's about 2.1 million of them, they do the day-to-day work of the federal government. They, the American people have the same problem or face the same problem with the federal bureaucracy that they face with the teachers' unions. Um, it's all but impossible to fire a career civil service guy. It's all but impossible to fire a unionized teacher. Um, and so you... You have no accountability for the results of what they do or what they don't do, and it makes it ten times as difficult to get important things done that need to be done um, without having uh, to expend so much energy and so much political capital that it becomes unrealistic to even try. So... What, what Russ thought did was he came up with a proposal called Schedule F, 
And Schedule F simply said that um, there are about 9,000 positions in the federal government, the federal bureaucracy, that uh, are basically decision-making positions. Since the electorate elects a president to carry out a certain agenda, the federal bureaucracy is supposed to, without favor for one way or the other, without ideological bias, to carry that agenda out. But when you have all these career bureaucrats who don't want to carry out an agenda that is for smaller government and limited government, um, you've got to have some kind of leverage to be able to uh, make sure that the agenda that the voters voted for gets carried out. And the way you do that is you take these 9,000 decision-making positions that career civil servants who can't be fired now can be fired. And that way you have accountability for the results. It's, it's, it's an absolutely it's an essential thing to do. Well, well, hold on, Curtis. I want to ask this one question because I remember when I became a police officer, at one point, yeah. if you worked for a government agency, whether it's on the state or federal level, you could not be unionized. And somehow or other, something in the 80s or something like that changed that. And now all of a sudden, if you are working for a state or federal government, you can be unionized. And what was, was that the Taylor Act? I forget. I'm just trying to pull no. something out of the back of my brain. No, Why no, did they allow? Goes back even, it goes back even further than that. The federal workforce was allowed in 1962 via an uh, executive order by President John F. Kennedy to organize in unions. And frankly, it didn't go very far at the outset, but by the 1970s, a big part of the federal civil service was unionized. Uh, And to this day, it remains that way. And these federal employee unions have a tremendous amount of political influence. They have a lot of money that they they contribute to Democratic uh, Congress people and candidates. Uh, And they are a real obstacle to, to seriously needed reforms. Well, you unionize the very people that are responsible for controlling their own jobs. So it it makes no sense to me, absolutely. Plus, they get all of these government perks and benefits from the job naturally that they don't even need the union in there to get them those perks. It's just part of the job. There's so many days off, and you can only work under certain circumstances, blah, 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 blah. There's nothing for the union to fight for except for political clout. Political clout and to preserve power. And the way you do that is you make sure that nobody like Donald Trump ever gets elected. No, and now you throw in the fact that they want to union or they have unionized or unionizing congressional workers, the staff for the members of Congress. But what happens when that member of Congress doesn't get reelected and someone else has that seat? So do those workers now just transfer over to the new member of Congress? Does it matter if that, they're Democrat or Republican? Annie, that is sticky a wicked. Great, that's a great question, and it's a question that has not yet been answered. 
Um, and it probably will not be answered until um, sometime after uh, the 2022 or certainly after the 2024 election. The unionization of the congressional staff at the moment is limited to only nine Congress congressional offices, uh, all Democrats. Uh, my guess is that's going to expand to 20 or 30 or 40 Democratic offices in the months ahead. But I have a suspicion that, that you know, when, when sobriety returns to these people, when they realize, wait a minute, if we allow these people to unionize, then we are going to have to deal with them the same way the companies in the private sector have to deal with them. And we know what kind of problem that's been for them. We don't want that kind of problem here in Congress. And I have a suspicion that they're going to um, back off of allowing the unionization of the staff to proceed. I think it's going to take a couple of years, but I have a feeling that's, that's what's going to happen. And, but on the union board is this guy, Philip Bennett, who is yeah. a Democratic Socialist of America member and is appointed president of the new Congressional Workers Union. Uh, I don't see a problem with that one, do you? No, not at all. I'm sorry, Chris, I just <laughs> want to get this through. What could go wrong? Yeah, what could go wrong? <laughs> Curtis, you, you, you've tried to ask me a question a couple of times. What's, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to go back to the subject of um, those who think we should take a, a different path uh, when it concerns, yeah. you know, Trump running. Yes. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be a different um, scenario if we controlled the House and the Senate? Well, I mean, we wouldn't let as much go, you know, go by like, like under you know, Democrat rule right now. Well, you'll recall back when uh, Obama was president and the Republicans controlled uh, the House, and Eric Holder, you'll recall the Fast and Furious scandal, absolutely refused to turn over documents that Congress clearly had the right to see. And yeah, I remember that. As a, result, as a result, the House of Representatives under Republican control uh, held Holder in contempt. Now, when Congress holds an individual in contempt, it's then up to the Department of Justice to decide whether or not to prosecute. And, of course, the Obama Department of Justice was not going to decide to prosecute the Obama Department of Justice Attorney General. Right. Because so, they so, ruled today. Yeah. Um, and And... Even if the Republicans gain decisive control of the House and the Senate, uh, President Biden or, God help us, President Harris, um, will still control the Department of Justice and the executive branch. And they are still going to control, no matter what happens in the election in 22 or 24, uh, the mainstream media. And the mainstream media, you know, I hate to say it, but they have probably more power to shape the narrative that most Americans hear on a day-to-day basis about what's happening in this country uh, than certainly anybody in government. So it's it's, it's well, a tough, tough decision to make. Yeah, and I was just talking about the 2024, not the midterms. Yeah. You know, DeSantis is, is, 
typically the guy that people talk about a, a lot. Um, I think Mike Pompeo, who was Secretary of State under uh, Trump, uh, would make a fine president. Um, there are a lot of people who are pretty enthusiastic about Nikki Haley, and, and inevitably there will be others who, who come up. I think Senator Cotton from Arkansas is, is thinking seriously about making a run. So, you know, Trump has certainly demonstrated in the primary so far this year that uh, his endorsement makes a huge difference. Uh, he remains the most no. powerful figure in the party. Now, he just recently endorsed two Democrats. Uh, that didn't go over too well, did it? Well, Ann, i gotta, I got to confess, you're, you know something I don't know. Ah, I, I'm trying Which to think. Which two Democrats are you names? talking about? There was one that was a female. Uh, he, I'm trying to remember her name. I did not print the article out. The other one when it was a guy. His name was Goldman. Uh, and both of them rejected the offer of endorsement. Uh, and oh, matter of fact, Goldman yeah. made a public statement that he's coming after Donald. <laughs> so it, really? it didn't sit too well really? for him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he posted boy. up, I think it was on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. I wonder why Trump was felt inclined to uh, endorse them. Well, you, you never know what comes out of him. You know, he... he, he just when you think you have him figured out, he, he pulls the rug out from underneath you. <laughs> yeah, which is a great thing when when the guy sitting across the table is the leader of China or Iran because you want to keep them guessing. Uh, but when you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out, you know, the next four years for the country, that's that's a different question. Well, there was something that... Uh, struck me, because after this debacle, this raid at Mar-a-Lago, Grassley's office, as well as Jim Jordan's office, have been getting these FBI whistleblowers coming out of the woodwork saying, yes, it's become highly political, and it it is an absolute witch hunt. Uh, Maybe this is enough to crack open the door to start clearing out the swamp. And I don't know if – are you hearing whether or not they're going to find some way to – pull funding from the FBI until they get their act together or dissolve it and start a new agency? Have you heard anything at all? Well, the, prob- the problem is that um, let's just let's assume that the Republicans have uh, <clears throat> an absolutely incredible election in 22 and they take over, they retake the majority in the House and the Senate. Uh, even then, and I have no doubt that, uh, especially in the House, uh, with all of these whistleblowers coming out of the woodwork and, and praise the Lord that they're doing so, um, th- there will be um, an effort, for example, I think, to impeach uh, some folks, perhaps Garland, the Attorney General. Uh, I think if I were Mayorkas, I would be making plans for a new job. Uh, because it's pretty clear to me that they they intend to impeach him. Um, but but when it comes to reducing funding or requiring other kinds of reforms within the executive branch, Congress has the authority to do that. There's no question about that. Congress sets the budget. Congress writes the law. Uh, but the president has a veto. And if the Republicans don't win huge majorities, two-thirds in each house, 
a veto-proof majority. Uh, Biden will just, you know, or Harris will just veto it, and you know, it delays the the day when the needed reforms become effective. Well, you know, along that line, um, Senator Cruz attempted to make uh, some amendments to redistribute the funds for those 87 IRS agents to other areas, such as hiring border agents, finishing the wall, uh, getting the IRS to finally get that uh, online uh, tax return filing done. But they stonewalled them every single way and managed to pass it with these 87,000 new agents. Now, we just had, like I said, Adam on earlier, we were talking about this. And what is the possibility at this point, right now it's nil, to remove the funding for these 87 agents, 87,000 agents? Well, it's nil now. Um, It won't be nil after November if the Republicans retake the House uh, or the House and the Senate. But then it becomes, uh, you know, um, an eyeball-to-eyeball staring contest between the Republicans in the House and the Senate versus Biden uh, and the media. And you can bet just as soon as the Republicans start saying things like we're going to defund those 87,000 IRS agents, um, the Biden will say, no, you're not. I'm not going to sign that, uh, even if it means shutting down the government. And we will have a real stalemate at that point. Well, I, I, and I have to correct myself. Do not have, Republicans don't have a great record of showing spine when the issue is, okay, uh, are we going to shut down the government over this? Well, I have to correct myself. It was on the House Rules Committee. Uh, it was Representative Ted Fudd, a Republican out of North Carolina, that was attempting to do the amendment. I misspoke. No, actually, so I will Ed, correct you're, myself. you're correct. You're, you're was correct. too. Cruz, Cruz did try that in the Senate. Um, the one that I thought was actually had a shot at being passed was those that Ted Bud offered in the House. Um, and I still think if it had gotten to the floor of the House, um, there's a chance that you know all you need in the House is five or six Democrats, actually three or four Democrats, to uh, vote against the Democratic leadership, Pelosi and Hoyer. And you can defeat something. And on and on on that particular issue, I think there was a chance that some of the Democrats would have shown some common sense and voted with the Republicans. Um, but even then, if it had passed the House, Biden would have said, "I'm not going to sign it," and it would have forced uh, a big uh, showdown between the Senate and and the House. So it's tough. Well, now. Well, House Judiciary Republicans are telling Garland Rye claim to preserve the raid documents. Uh, yes. I can hear that shredder going like crazy. Um, I'm wondering how many just actually just can't seem to find them. Or do you think they actually will adhere to the request from the House Judiciary Republicans to preserve documents? Because, you know, once we control the House again, it, the pages are going to flip and the January 6th committee is going to have a whole new outlook, as well as now the raid on Mar-a-Lago. I'll tell you, Ann, if you had asked me before 2017 
would the FBI ever lie to a FISA judge in order to get a search warrant? I would have said, no way. The FBI would never do that. But they did do it against Donald Trump. And uh, frankly, for that reason alone, it would not surprise me one bit to know that documents that that are covered by the congressional uh, direction preserve this document, that a bunch of them will never be preserved and will never be seen. Now, there's also... Um I remember seeing something also uh, dealing with the uh, Russiagate, asking for new documentation on that, because Paul Manafort's book is starting to blow things wide open uh, about what was actually going on and what was kept from the trial that ended up putting him behind bars when he should have been walking free man. Even with his bail hearing, when he spent all that time, uh, bail denied, sent straight to jail before any trial. Uh, a lot of unprecedented things were, have been going on in attacks against Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the thing. The, the, the Democrats in Congress and the Democrats in the media and the Democrats in the civil service bureaucracy um, and the Democrats in elected office uh, have shown that you know, I don't. I don't think there's anything that those people won't do to stop Donald Trump. So you can't. You can't rule out any possibility with them. I, I think destroying documents, incriminating documents, is probably something they wouldn't have any problem at all doing. Yeah, I a mean, little beach bit. Oh, what is it? Like what Hillary Clinton did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do, you, what do you mean? You take a cloth and just wipe it? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You remember that? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. Now, my other question is, what is the chance of Michelle Obama running against, say, Trump or DeSantis? I think Michelle Obama is the Democrats' Donald Trump in the sense that if she runs – Everybody else, it's, it's it's a whole new ball game. Um, if and and it's and it's a problem for everybody in the party who thinks they should be running for president instead of Michelle Obama. Um, you know, it's it's analogous to the uh, Republican problem. There's a whole bunch of Republicans that would like to run in 24, but if Trump does, then they're very likely going to say, "No, I'll wait till the next time." Um, Michelle Obama could be very formidable, um, I think, for a while until she really started to have to answer some tough questions, and I suspect that would be very, very challenging. Well, she would have her husband at her side coaching her every single step of the way, and you know she is the media darling on the left. I mean, she can't do any wrong, you know. And, and but anyway, ABC, NBC, New York Times, Washington Post, they're not going to ask her the tough questions. No, 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 they won't. No, they won't at all. Well, Mark, it's always fun to have you on. People can read your your writing as the D.C. correspondent for the Epic Times or each Poach Times. <laughs> we'll say <laughs> both ways. <laughs> so until we talk to you again in two more weeks, enjoy what's left of the summer. 
You and guys have, have a great time. All right. You too, Mark. God bless you, and take care. See you later. All right. Check out Mark Tapscott at the uh, Epic Times, uh, theepictimes.com. want to welcome from the Heritage Foundation back to our show, the one, the only, the last victim of the day, Jonathan Butcher, who is the Skillman Fellow on Education at Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, and welcome back, Jonathan. Well, good afternoon. Yeah, now I put an article aside, and I said I want to talk to you about it. Ah, there it is, because I was talking to... Uh, uh, Adam Andaevsky and uh, from the uh, Open the Books uh, about education and Merrick Garland's son-in-law, uh, Zan Tanner, has this uh, company called Panorama Education. And this is some scary stuff. Yes, I mean, that's one of the companies that has been producing content that is aligned with uh, critical race theory and gathers, um, I mean, it's a part of this whole movement here to gather student data and um, uh, in particular to train students in the, the basic ideas around critical race theory. Mm. And Adam said he's going to get me a list of all the schools in my state. Uh, so I'm listeners out there, go to open the books and ask Adam for what's going on in your state uh, because Wyoming actually pulled out of it. It's the first state to actually have done that. And let's just hope that starts an avalanche, because what we're learning about that and how um, they are profiting at the brainwashing uh, the, of our kids, our future generation, and how they're going to steal our nation this way. It's very, very scary. But you're not asleep at the wheel, because as I understand you have been working with uh, other conservative groups and the Washington Examiner in a week of action to empower parents' advanced education choice. Tell us about that. Well, sure. So there was a set of articles that uh, were from authors at the Heritage Foundation, some of my colleagues, as well as uh, my colleagues at the Goldwater Institute, um, uh, groups that we work with, such as Parents Defending Education, had uh, individuals, Eric Asanzi wrote uh, a piece as well, all talking about the importance of school choice and giving parents the options um, about how and where their children learn. Uh, my piece was on uh, the, the words diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how they used to mean something that was more substantial, right? They used to mean uh, diversity of ideas. They used to mean uh, differences of, of uh of individuals having a conversation about what America means, and now it's just uh, ratios of people based on skin color, and now it actually means there is not a diversity of thought. There is only one standard dogma. Uh, the same with equity, right? I mean, equity is, uh, it, it used to have this connotation of equality under the law, of people being uh, equal in the, in the eyes of the law, of being treated the same regardless of their background, skin color, country of origin. Uh, now it means equal outcomes and that uh, public policy and the government should create the same outcomes for everyone regardless of their choices or behavior, which is, uh, you know, nothing short of, of totalitarian. And then inclusion. And inclusion 
really means exclusion these days. I mean, schools are using mandatory affinity groups where they're separating students according to skin color. This was happening up in Wellesley, Massachusetts, for example, um, as well as uh, there was an example in Pickens County, South Carolina, that I wrote about a couple of weeks ago, um, where they were ready to use a have a critical race theorist come and present to a school, and they were separating students by skin color for the school activity. Um, school choice, though, when it's available to everyone, when everyone has the same great opportunity to access a quality learning option and to choose, you know, a private school or to choose to homeschool or to choose to use a learning pod, that's inclusive. It's inclusive when everyone has access to the same great opportunities. Well, I happen to say that here we passed for the education savings account in South Carolina, and I'm seeing more and more states are doing that, where the the money follows the child. The child no longer follows the money. I think that's that is absolutely wonderful, and I think the pandemic brought that to the forefront of the conversation. Oh, I agree, and, and sadly it failed in South Carolina this last legislative session. It was a huge disappointment. Uh, there were two proposals, one in the Senate and one in the House. Uh, they both advanced, and uh, the lawmakers had to go to conference committee uh, to work out the differences between the House version and the Senate version, and it, in just a remarkable twist, they were not able to come to any sort of agreement, and so the entire proposal just died. Uh, so it was very sad. Um, I think the, the lawmakers who supported that idea uh, really deserve credit because I think there was widespread support in both the House and the Senate, and it was unfortunate that the leadership couldn't make that happen. Yeah, I think one of the ones leading the charge is my congresswoman, uh, Shannon Erickson, and uh, Tom Davis was leading it on the Senate side, and he's a friend of mine, too. He used to be my senator, so he did redistricting. Um, I'm sorry to hear that it didn't. I, I missed that. So I'm going to have to find out from her where we stand and if it's going to come back up again. And I'm sure they will try to bring it back up again. But it's, uh, it's, it's I a hope lot so. to... Been... Yeah, I mean, there's been huge success in other states. Yeah, there's been a lot of success in other states. Arizona just expanded their education savings accounts to every child in the state of Arizona. Uh, Governor Doug Ducey signed that about two weeks ago. Um, in West Virginia last year, they also created an education savings account for just about every public school child in the state. Um, so when you want to talk about inclusive, that's inclusive, right, when you have a program that's available to everyone uh, who wants to apply. Well, it actually applies the capitalistic ideal. I mean, if this is what the consumer wants and the parents are the consumer, and they are purchasing for their children a certain product that they want their child to enjoy and to benefit from, then the consumer makes the decision. So if that school fails, be it public or private, so be it. But it is the capitalistic ideal at its best. Well, and I think we see this in other areas of education, right? I mean, you can use a Pell Grant to choose a private school. You can use a federal student loan to go to most private colleges. And so um, uh, to, to say that in K-12 you're not able to use your child's portion of school spending um, to choose a, a private learning option, that's, um, you know, inconsistent with how we do higher ed. It's inconsistent with how we do things like, I mean, even, even food stamps, right? Even 
um, even uh, healthcare programs that uh, people want to be able to choose their own doctor. Um, so to to say that you cannot um, use a scholarship to send your child to private school, it actually discriminates against uh, the values that families hold, right? I mean, people often choose a private school because it reflects their uh, religious beliefs or because it it reflects their um, their personal values on on uh, subjects that are important to them. So when you say you cannot choose a private school, um, you're discriminating against someone's values, against someone's beliefs. Yeah, because you wrote about this one woman, uh, a doctor, Nancy Anderson, and she sent her child to Montessori school. Now, when I, we started our tea party back in 2009, Montessori was a very conservative school. Uh, I am sorry to see that I'm hearing it from some of my members that had ch- their children going to Montessori. Uh, that That is not so anymore. Yeah, and some of the national interest groups that um, work with Montessori schools, their associations for Montessori schools, they have uh, DEI statements. Uh, they have statements that are also in favor of, um, you know, these kind of r- racially uh, obsessed ideas about uh, identity politics. There's actually a Montessori group called um, Montessori for Social Justice, um, which, you know, as it sounds, right, I mean, this is talk, this is a group committed to training students to be activists around these issues um, that, in fact, are racially discriminatory, right? When you are saying that individuals should get added benefits uh, because of the color of their skin, that's that's racially discriminatory. And And for those who say conservatives are just making this up or conservatives are just using this as a dog whistle. I mean, look at Minneapolis public schools. Just last week, the teacher union and the school district announced a contract that they agreed on after a teacher strike last year. And the contract says that when they have to consider layoffs, they will lay off white teachers first, irregardless of their seniority or their effectiveness, which should be the most important thing. I mean, it's just a shocking violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to say that you would lay off a teacher based on their skin color. I mean, it's just appalling. When I heard that one, it it is just frightening that the fact that they actually put this forward. I'm sorry. Uh, You you want to say black lives matter. We say all lives matter. We're supposed to be equal in the eyes of the law and yet you would deny me employment based upon my skin color. Um, if, my, if this was said, and you would say, we're going to let go first all black teachers first and keep the white ones, you'd think there would be a public outlaw. But instead, you just reverse it, and because we're supposed to have the white privilege and white guilt, we just sit back and take it. I don't think so. Well, I think that the lessons that we need to be teaching students of any color, but let's say, let's say especially young children who are black and uh, who are in, um, from disadvantaged homes, let's say single-parent homes, or from low-income backgrounds, if we want to help these children, we need to train them with the skills and the knowledge that they need to be successful in school and in life. We need to double down on preparing them to succeed in reading, to succeed in math, to succeed in science, so that they can either 
leave high school and enter the workforce or leave high school and go to college and be successful at a two or four year university. And they are, they're only going to have the chance at that success if we prepare them in K-12 with a, a solid grounding in uh, some of the classic works of Western literature, uh, the history of the United States, including the ideas that were a part of slavery in the 19th century, a part of the Jim Crow era, so that'll never be repeated. That's the point, right, of when you see failures in history to live up to our ideals about the value of the individual, about freedom under the law, is that we need to teach young people that we never want that to happen again. Um, and so that's why the failures to live up to our promises and our founding ideals, we have to teach that to students so that they'll never let it happen again. And yet here we are looking at schools like the schools up in Minneapolis, which are you know, clear violations of the Civil Rights Act. The same with Wellesley, Massachusetts, which had mandatory racial affinity groups. The same with um, uh, schools in, in Hayward Unified School District out in California, which has a statement saying that they will keep critical race theory in the classroom, um, and they release that statement to their school community. I mean, and on and on, right? These examples of racial discrimination. Well, you wrote a great article, a commentary, called Don't Reform Higher Education, Rebuild It. And I love it because it gives us hope that there is a way to to bring education back to what it should be, its 18th and 19th century ideals of a classical education. And um, one of the things you say is students go back to school, voters, taxpayers, and policymakers are asking can higher education be saved? And you're saying not so much saving it. Let's look at rebuilding it. Yes. I mean, as we were, uh, you know, sending students back to college uh, now, they're going back to campus. My uh, my younger brother is, is going back to campus right now. Um, and as we think about what this means, uh, parents are confronted with uh, high levels of student loan debt right now and the White House talking about forgiving student loans, which actually means shifting the costs onto taxpayers. Um, and then you have these examples of free speech shoutdowns and biased response teams and cancel culture on college campuses. Um, and, uh, and so we're kind of wondering, what do we need to do about colleges in the U.S. in order to make them a place where students can pursue truth, where uh, professors can instill in them an understanding of what uh, education is, is all about and discussing ideas with which you don't agree and all of these things. Um, so I said, well, look, uh, what's being done? And it was fascinating to find um, a remarkable group of entrepreneurs as well as uh, researchers and, and writers and thinkers are creating new colleges. They're just starting over. Um, I found a school in North Carolina called Salem's College started by uh, Bob Luddy, who is a, um, a successful businessman in uh, North Carolina who actually has created a string of private schools based on classic works of uh, studying classic works of, of literature and science and, and uh, uh, from the Western canon. And now he's created a college uh, to do the same thing at the higher education level. He wants it to be affordable. He wants students to have job opportunities and internships, so they're, uh, they're having apprenticeships while they're in school. 
Um, so he's, he's really designed a school that will prepare young people to enter the, the workforce with skills. Um, I found a school, um, and, and this one has made headlines in the last eight months, about the last year, um, down in Austin, Texas, um, founded in part by uh, Barry Weiss, who was a former writer for the New York Times, and uh, Glenn Lowry, a, a professor at Brown, who's an outspoken uh, advocate for free speech. And uh, the, at the University of Austin, they have committed themselves to uh, uh, free expression and to, uh, and to uh, making sure that uh, students can debate different ideas and, and getting really back to the roots of what higher education was, was built to do. Uh, so this is exciting, right? It's exciting to see that um, we're we're not, you know, we're not giving up, right, on the higher education experience. We're just saying, look, if if uh, universities that have been established now for hundreds of years are not going to be open to debate, why then we're gonna we're just gonna start over and create new ones. Yeah, because I remember here in South Carolina, the University of South Carolina uh, wanted to do a program, uh, a women's program on how to become a lesbian in three easy days, uh, we kind of like stopped that one. <laughs> so um, I'm glad that uh, we had garnered enough outrage within our state with conservative groups to stop that program. And there's been a couple others that we do, but uh, these private colleges are such a wonderful idea, and we have also have to hold the feet to the fire for our public colleges, like you know University of South Carolina. Um, but there's there's so much to talk about because they're talking about this loan forgiveness for select groups. Well, what happens to all the other people uh, that have the loans that they've been paying off or have already paid off? They're left out in the cold. But who ultimately foots the bill in the end run? It's you and me, the taxpayer. And we're not made of unlimited cash. How much more do they, you think that they're going to put on our shoulders to to pay for, we're already what is it thirty trillion in debt. Well, yes, and and when there was conversation during the uh, presidential campaign a couple of years ago, uh, when Biden talked about doing this, perhaps by executive order, there were some who estimated that this would be the most expensive executive order in American history if uh, student loan debt was forgiven. Uh, and look, you you bring up a great point um, because it is excluding those families who saved up to pay for a child's education, who put money in a 529 plan, who uh, took an extra job, who um, did all sorts of, um, uh, took on all sorts of inconveniences so that their child could, uh, could go to college. So to say that, you know, we're just going to forgive student debt is uh, highly discriminatory against those families who, who saved up and, um, and have made it possible on, without help, right, without um, betting on loan forgiveness. Uh, I would say, too, that, you know, we have to remember that those students who have the highest level of debt right now are graduates. They're the students who are in law school and medical school, uh, and also those at the top percentile of the income spectrum have uh, higher levels of debt than those um, at the bottom. So this would be a highly regressive uh, policy if, uh, if it was enacted. I mean, if they forgive student loan debt, you are overwhelmingly helping those at the higher end of the spectrum and those in graduate school who are going to be getting jobs in medicine and business um, and law, for example, and earning salaries that will allow them to pay back these loans. 
Um, so it's it's not helping those at the bottom. It's not helping those from low-income families as much as it's helping those at the top. No, it, it's not. And, again, who's going to bear the burden? The taxpayer. And who's going to bear the resentment? Those that are not part of the program where they're going to get uh, the loan forgiveness or get their loan repaid to them. Uh, there's going to be a, a mini civil war on the financial front. But... Uh, well, one of your articles, you quote uh, the Associated Press uh, University of Chicago poll asking what does define America in, uh, they did this last year in 2021, and 85% of the respondents, now this is a poll out of Chicago, which is not a bastion heaven for you know conservatives, that uh, 85% believe individual liberties and freedoms as defined by the Constitution are important to our national identity. Um, and I think, uh, again, I'm going to say the pandemic may have brought this to the forefront about the other opportunities parents have for educating their children. Well, I thought that this poll and that question was uh, particularly important because uh, it was a nationally representative sample of, uh, of Americans, and they, to have a nationally representative poll find that individuals believe that our Constitution and our laws are still important to who we are and our identity, that flies in the face of critical race theory. Critical race theory believes that American law is oppressive, that American law needs to be taken apart either piece by piece or all at once. That's a paraphrase of a quote by a critical theorist named Duncan Kennedy. Um, and so, you know, when when we have Americans still believing that our Constitution means something and that our founding ideals have value to them, uh, that is the opposite of what critical race theory teaches, right? Critical race theory teaches um, that the law must be disbanded, right? Uh, critical race theorists believe that the Civil Rights Act is in itself discriminatory. Uh, Ibram Kendi has written that, so has um, um, the godfather of critical race theory, Derek Bell, uh, at Richard Delgado, they have all written that the only reason civil rights succeeded in the United States was because white people believed that was the only way they could preserve their power. I mean, it's an incredibly cynical take on uh, uh, the important ideas that, that really uh, we have built so much on top of the Civil Rights Act. It has made possible for so many people the ability to be successful and to achieve the American dream. To condemn it in that way is... Um, uh, is, is frankly um, just disgusting. It is. It absolutely is. But uh, I'm looking at the clock. We only have a few minutes left. Oh, my goodness. Um, this, uh, the uh, week of action you have to empower parents and advance education choice, uh, can they go on to Heritage Foundation and find the articles or videos? Can people still tap into that? Yes, they can. You can find our work at heritage.org. Uh, you can find my work, and I, I try to tweet the work of my colleagues and those with whom we um, have shared many of these ideas, like Parents Defending Education and the Goldwater Institute. I'm at at jm underscore butcher. And the, the uh, articles that you're talking about with the Washington Examiner are uh, available on the Washington Examiner site, and they, they have a, a certain project called Restoring America, and so these articles are, are under that, uh, that tab on the Washington Examiner's uh, website. 
Well, you're out there doing fantastic work, and you know we love you, so you're always welcome here. And if you got something going on, just tap Tom on the shoulder and say, hey, let me talk to Annie <laughs> and get me back on. Great. Well, I'd be glad to do so. Thank you. All right. It is our pleasure. Jonathan Busher, find him at heritage.org. And God bless you, Jonathan, for the hard work you do. Thank you. All right. All right, Curtis, that's all we got for today. Um, we will be back next week. Paul Manafort, who should have been here today, will be with us next week. He had to catch a flight, so that's why he's not with us. But his book, oh, my goodness, it, 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 you read this book, it really blows everything wide open. I'm about halfway through it, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm going, well, wait a minute. This is not what I heard <laughs> in the news. This is not what I was reading about. And he just goes in there. Uh, this uh, guy Weissman, the one, the prosecutor that went after him, the down and dirty mm-hmm. tricks where they use fake news articles or articles based upon just innuendo or rumors. They use it as actual evidence in the courtroom that he did something wrong. Simply because someone spread a rumor or someone created a fake story, that became courtroom evidence against him which caused him to be convicted. So, guys, this is, this is really scary. This is the police state that we were talking about earlier, uh, and uh, it's a must-read. It is, it is a must-read. But that's all we got yeah, for you, now for today, Curtis. And you, will you be yeah, with us this week? Say, I was just going to say quickly, you would think that, you know, some of the judges that Trump put in would be around to stop some of this madness, but you never know. Not when you're dealing with the D.C. Circuit Court. Anyway, are you going to be with us next week? Almost certainly. I'll be here. Okay. It's the night well, then I'll, I'll be here, night December. Ah, well, you got to remind me. Well, then I will leave okay. everyone um, with our closing song from my friend Gary Pecorella, Save America. So until next week, I say good night, God bless, and enjoy what's left of summer.